What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Blade Dive Podcast. My name is Parker Bohan, and I'm so stoked you're tuned in. I'm your host, as always. And just a quick reminder, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast already, go ahead and do so. It would mean a lot to me. And if you've got 60 seconds, that's it, 60 seconds, don't hesitate to leave us a review. It really does help out the show. Don't forget to follow us on social media at The Blade Dive on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you're creating and posting photos, don't forget to tag us either using the hashtag The Blade Dive. Okay, my guest today is Charles Beckinsale. And if you don't know Charles, Charles is truly a humble dude who really deploys his passion and skill set for the good of the industry. It's almost as if he's Luke Skywalker with a fancy lightsaber and his fancy lightsaber is his snowcat. Truly, that's the best way to put it. We talk about what it was like growing up in Australia. We discuss his professional snowboarding career and kind of how that transcends into his terrain park and special project designs and what they ride like too. We talk about his brand, the Stomping Grounds. He's super proud of that. And he's more proud of the team of builders that are associated with it too. He is definitely a family man and treasures the time that he has with them. His wife is always on board with providing a little bit of input for what the terrain park design and layout looks like. Maybe it's missing a bit of a wow factor. And I, and I think that that's awesome. So big shout out to Amy for putting up with all of Charles's bullshit over the years. There are a ton of special guests in this episode, so you're going to want to stay tuned so you can listen to all of their questions they have for Charles. And you know what? If you're at home right now, grab your favorite drink, kick your feet up, and if you're in the machine, you know what to do. Turn up the volume. What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Blade Dive, and whew, today's guest, man, once again, I am I'm outweighed with experience, but just humbled by the knowledge that's in the room, the virtual booth, and I've got Charles Beckinsale with me. Charles, welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks very much, Parker. Honored to be on. I do want to say, I, I honestly, um, I'm grateful you're taking the time, but I've, I've always admired and looked at you as the gentleman of the operator scene the park world the the genuine nice individual who always is just polite <laughs> and um has people's backs not only willing to stand up for himself and his family but um just an all-around great guy so um I'm, I'm stoked to to hear the further intel and the perspective man thanks for being on oh, here. thanks that's a pretty pretty high rap <laughs> i'll take it i think it's true dude i'm, I'm stoked i'm gonna just give you that title the the gentleman i like it man i like it a lot my mom, my mom will be stuck. <laughs> She'll be tuned in. <laughs> Charles's mom, if you're listening right now, it's true. He's the gentleman. He's legit. You did well. <laughs> She'll be hot. Um, I think, you know, so often, I mean, on this show, we've talked about, you know, where people have come from and, and what they've gotten into in their careers and uh, what life looked like and uh, how deep that was or or maybe what if there were any transitions or patterns along that journey that led them to either the snow industry or or the terrain park world or or, or any piece of operations but um i really want to go chronologically with you because um 
I just growing up as as Charles Beckinsale, I think is just in my head. I have it pictured as this amazing story um, that I want to unpack. And so, what did that? Let's just jump into it that way. What did that look like for you growing up, like Charles Beckinsale? It was it was pretty awesome. I mean, like there was definitely a lot of like you know ups and downs and a few really qu- quite challenging times. But um, you know, my my mom and dad were, were together until I was about five years old, and then they kind of uh, they lost. I guess their fortunes in the, uh, the the 87 crash and uh, we were basically like uh, had to leave our home in Melbourne and we moved up with uh, my my mum's parents in Foster Tonkari and then once she kind of found her feet up there and got a job as a as a single mother at that point um, it was just us and uh, and her and yeah she she did an amazing job I mean definitely struggled through a lot of stuff and um yeah, but we we kind of grew up surfing and on the on the on the coast in Foster Tonkari in northern New South Wales, and uh, yeah, went to school there and had a sister growing up as well, like a few years younger than me, and she was she was awesome. I mean, her and I kind of went through everything together, and the divorce we kind of went back and forth between mum and dad, and it was uh, it was turbulent for like six years, you know, like you you know one parent. <laughs> taking you back from the other and yeah for a while there it was it was pretty wild but um you know mum was was kind of like not really a a parental figure in a way she was more of like a, a thrill seeker and kind of just a free spirit so for us we we kind of were exposed to a lot of stuff she really wanted to get us into sport I'd go skateboarding in the afternoons and surfing in the morning before school and yeah and then eventually we we found uh found snowboarding mum decided she wanted to relive her early life because we weren't really getting ahead or ticking all the financial boxes you know most people want to check like houses mortgages building a future so we went down to the snow um so she could ski instruct again and we lived in a caravan park out at a pat's patch just outside of jinderbone and um yeah from that point like uh she would instruct and and we would pack ourselves a lunch and hike all the way up the um the access trail at Threadburr, uh to the, the train park, and it was about mid-mountain, so it was a, it was a solid hike. But um, we were kind of weren't fortunate enough to be able to afford season passes and stuff and new gear, so we'd get like old shitty rental stuff, ex-rental stuff that was on its way to the tip pretty much. And um, we would we would kind of scam the T-bar the because they weren't checking tickets in the park, which was the T-bar lap. So we pretty much learned how to snowboard properly in the terrain park at the time. Wow, and it was uh, it was a pretty awesome. Like, I mean, you know, it was it was incredible, um, a way to come up, and yeah, so thankful for for all of it. What did uh, I have to ask? Like backing up just a little bit and unpacking a portion of that, the transition from the coast to the snowy mountains, um, just kind of was there a little bit of like, hey, yeah, I'm cool with that, or mm, I've got to figure out kind of some new territory here, and is that kind of where the you know, packing lunch and just hiking up to the park came from, just exploring the new territory? Yeah, I mean, for us, we were just, you know, we'd been in Foster since we were probably six, since I was six years old. Um, hmm. And I think at that time, we were about 13 years old. We went down and did our first winter season. And it was funny, you know, like most people will start by like a weekend or a holiday for a week. But we just like rocked up and we're like, yeah, we're, we're doing the season. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. what, what is snow? You know, like something that's on Christmas cards in Australia, not this real thing. Yeah. And, and for us, like it was uh, super magical. Like we were hooked straight away. You know, I, we, we kind of like couch surfed in this instructor's pad, like super random. 
as a father now, I'm like, there's no way I would pull that shit. Like my mom had, you know, she had guts. <laughs> yeah. And she's, yeah. it's just a little bit crazy, which is <laughs> props to it. We were like couch yeah. at an instructor's house, like, you know, mom and two kids. And it was, yeah, we're like, we're basically gypsies. And, uh, Dude, yeah, that's awesome. it was wild. Like we were exposed to some cool yeah. stuff and the, the snowboard instructors, they were like, man, you kids are like pretty, pretty loose. I like it. You know, like come snowboarding <laughs> with us. And, and, uh, we were just like kind of taken under the wing by these Wait, older people. You were, si- you were six. How old were you? We were, when you, we're when you were doing that, the couch surfing? We were 13, okay, 13 okay, at okay. that time. My sister was okay. about 10. <laughs> okay. And, uh. Yeah, I guess that that whole thing, like we were exposed to like, you know, first movies we saw like TV8 and Decade and um, that was just like, you know, mind-blowing. J.P. Walker, like ever since then, he's like he's like one of my snowboarding idols, you know, like everything he did, I just wanted to emulate. And Devin Walsh, like you were just in awe of those dudes and that was um, kind of what got me hooked. I'd even go skateboarding when I was like in the summer and think about like snowboard tricks like switch front boards and all this stuff. It was... um. Yeah, snowboarding just had me by the balls. That's all I wanted to do. Cool. Where did you? When did you get your first snowboard? Ah, that first season. Like we just we kind of got down there, like super unplanned. We're just like, yeah, we're going for a season. How's that sound? You guys are coming out of school. <laughs> I'm like, sounds awesome. Good. <laughs> I'll give this thing a go. And uh, yeah. we came down there, and yeah, we just you know asked around the rental shops if they were selling a, an old snowboard or something like that, and yeah, we'd go to the you know, the uh, swap meets and stuff like that and just get our stuff janky secondhand, cheap or free. Picture the biggest kook on the hill, you know, like random mitts, you know, some Carrera goggles that like, you know, an older instructor would tell you is like, that shit, that's that's quality, you know. That stuff is never, you're never going to have to get another pair of goggles and these things are like 20 years old and you're in a, you know, like a blue onesie or the shitty old snowboard that you spray painted because you're embarrassed about how shit it was. But it's like you get to the point. <laughs> yeah, it's funny looking back now. I mean, my kid, you know, he's in head to toe Burton onesie with his Burton board and like dragon goggles. You're like, man, you have no idea like how lucky you are to just start with the right shit. It's um, but yeah, I mean, it was great. You just I went and got a job at McDonald's after after that winter, and I was like, I'm buying all the best shit after this. Backing up just a little bit more too, like. I got to ask just on the surfing, uh, from the surfing point of view, did you, or did you not surf at least a little bit while you were on the coast? I mean, I know you kind of said you transitioned at an early age over to the snowy mountains, but was surfing involved at all? Yeah, it was. I mean, I, I started surfing pretty much like two years after we got to foster. Um, I think I was around like eight, eight years old and we started kind of getting into it and, um, you know, started bodyboarding cause that's what you did when you were pretty young and then you got told that's kind of for kooks and you should get on a surfboard and yeah surfing was amazing i wasn't like you know the, the best surfer in foster by any means but it was um it was super fun and you know like you'd go in the mornings before school because the the, the water was kind of glassy and um surf was usually pretty good and the, we lived like a bike ride away from the beach so in an apartment so we could go and check check in the mornings and go for a quick surf and then you'd go to school after school, you could go surfing again, or you, if the surf was, you know, the wind was onshore and it was choppy, you'd you'd go skateboarding. And um, yeah, I mean, skateboarding kind of like started to get its claws into me because it felt a bit more relatable trick-wise to snowboarding. 
So I'd be pretending it was snowboarding every day. Yeah. I was on my skateboard. <laughs> probably looked like a moron, but it was fun. Australia is just an incredible country. I mean, flat out, man. Yeah. It really is. And I, I just, I want to know what you miss the most about Australia while you're traveling for your job. I mean, I really don't miss the summer heat. And that's kind of been pretty unbearable. In the last few years of the bushfires, it's been, you know, crazy. But, uh, I mean, the, the food, to be honest, like the lifestyle there and the, and the food and like the quality of the coffee and all that stuff, it's like pretty hard to beat, you know. And um, <laughs> it's just the little things, I guess. We're, we're definitely not as diverse as a country like the States with the different climates and environments. I mean, like we, most people in Australia live on the coast because, you know, we're, we're kind of a massive island. And then the further you go in land, like the more barren it gets and sandy and deserty. And then you look at... um. You know, we're, we're just incredibly lucky to have like mountains that have snow on them for, you know, like four or five months of the year. And it's just, it's, I kind of compare it to like Southern California, the ski resorts there. Like they can get good snow, but the majority of the time it's like sunny and slushy and just good times. And you'll get a couple of powder days a year that you could claim a powder days. But I mean, a lot of the time it's kind of a bit more dense and wet, but it's, um, it's a good time. And you're snowboarding around gum trees, which like just, People, you know, like I remember people like Marco Grillick and stuff coming out and just blowing out about like, they're like, it's like a fucking jungle, man. <laughs> <laughs> like, like talking about the gum trees. Oh, <laughs> oh God. Uh, mm. I, I will say, yeah, that was definitely, uh, yeah, I would agree. Um, do you think you, I mean, do you think, have you been to most parts of the country? I mean, I wish I could say I did. Like I was born in Melbourne, haven't been back there since. I've been to Victoria, but not as far as, you know, Melbourne itself. You know, because you live on the East Coast, we kind of tend to just like go up and down the East Coast. I've been as far north as Cairns and I've seen like most of the coastline on the East Coast. Like, you know, you'll do a road trip and kind of stop in a few towns and check it out. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think Australians are pretty bad at like looking at their own backyard. Like my philosophy on travel is travel far while you're young and when you get older, you can do the shorter trips. And I think... Um, yeah, I mean, you don't want to take long haul flights when you're like sixty. <laughs> you can, but you can take an RV and drive around and <laughs> just take your time. Yeah, I'm tired. Can we pull over? <laughs> yeah. What week later? I need to do five pisses every ten minutes. <laughs> oh man, I'm sorry. This episode's not going to be me laughing all the time, but you're, I mean, this is awesome. Yeah. And, and I've always enjoyed just catching up with you. I think that's the whole point in this conversation too. Is that um, you know, meaning what I said earlier about the gentleman comment, it's just always a pleasure to catch up with you. You're always genuine and you mean what you say, um, but you're not taking things too seriously. Um, and I think that's what makes you great. Thanks, brother. Yeah, man. Um, I know that you already touched on it just a little bit, but how did Parks, as a bigger picture, become kind of more of a focal point for you? Um, well, basically, the allure at the time for me was like, there's guys like Damon Haler and, and, and uh, you know, Jody Coles and people people like that. They were pros at the time back home and they were they were the guys I wanted to like ride with and, and emulate and learn from and they were they were working the park crew. I mean they'd go away and like shoot in Whistler and places like that and you'd see them in the magazines and then they were just out there like raking takeoffs and trying to like, you know, manipulate the park crew like the park program to build what they wanted, um, which stoked me out. I was like, Man, you can 
hang out with these dudes and like ride with them all day because at the time like you know there was like five guys looking after that little cruiser terrain park which is there's not much going on there and i was always reminiscing about the days you had just the cruiser park and five guys you were just shred all day i was more interested i was just like frothing to like learn tricks and wanted to set up like rails like i saw in the videos and you know that was kind of my my drive and then you know i volunteered and i was like probably this annoying little kid but they were stoked on me they were like ah it's charles you know a little grommy and i would just come shred and yeah eventually they put me on the um the day crew and i was paid i think i was like 16 at the time and i was you know all sponsored and everything else and everything had worked out pretty well i was like shooting for the mags and the movies in australia at the time and um yeah it was like it was it was a blast wow was um okay so I want to unpack that real quick. The the component of you becoming a part of the crew, you know, we've mentioned it before on this show where there's, you know, maybe a little bit of a barrier of entry too. Um, not necessarily like a hazing piece, but more or less just like a, hey, we're going to kind of suss this guy out a little bit, make sure he's cool. Um, mm-hmm. You know, hey, we got to make sure this, uh, this gal is, uh, is all right. Or, you know, was there any of that or was it just you were genuinely motivated and the genuine person that you are kind of prevailed over having to participate in anything like that. I mean, it was definitely probably pretty annoying at the start. They were probably like, who's this kid? But I think after a while they figured it out. Like maybe instructors kind of told them like a bit about my background or something like that. And they're like, Oh, you know, Charles is just like, just, just like random kid just winging it. And uh, he's, he's cool. So they kind of like took me under their wing and, you know, I remember like, getting picked up by the terrain park manager at the time, Benny Hazlitt, and you drive me to work and like, you know, this guy's like <laughs> telling me about all these rave parties he's been to the night before and how many ecstasies he's taken. And I'm like 16, <laughs> 16 going, whoa. Tell, whoa. Me about, tell me about the chicks he's been banging. And I'm like, wow, this guy is like living. And we'll listen to like, <laughs> we'll listen to like Tribe Called Quest and everything up the hill. And he's like putting me under all of like the, the cool music. And yeah, it was your eyes were open pretty early living that way. It was, um, it was cool. Yeah. So definitely, I mean, it sounds like you were just yourself still and you were just going, Hey man, I'm into this. Can you, can you give me a job? I'd be really stoked to be a part of the crew. Um, yeah, that's rad. Definitely felt like I had a lot of, you know, big bros looking out for me. Cool. Um, one of the, one of the people I definitely want to bring up just because I was around him with you was, uh, Mr. Sammy Towers. Um, dude. I've, I've, yeah, dude, incredible guy, but I've got a great story about Sammy because <laughs> there was one morning in the cat where I was, you know, he's showing up and he's looking at it and he, you know, and I get out and he just looks at it and he goes, you know, Hey Parker, mate, that's like, that's like wrong. <laughs> that, that whole thing right there is wrong, dude. And I'm going, right okay well um the, we've got an hour he's like yeah no no no. it's gonna be here here and here and i'm like all right well cool and it was all about just the transition of a takeoff and it, it wasn't anything crazy like we had to move like three features over to a different spot but it was just that i felt like sammy had this eye for uh detail in the morning and when you're looking at a guy who's like six foot six you're just gonna say yes sir no problem i'll do that for you sir <laughs> i mean i was intimidated for sure the first year there I was like, for, this the, guy for those for those listening, Sammy Towers, he's hugely tall, but he's skinny, you know. He's <laughs> but he's a, he's an interesting character, man. Huge. And he's like, yeah, yeah, such an awesome dude. But he should have been a, a park builder, man. He never wanted to 
get in the cat and do the nights and all the antisocial shit that I really wanted to do. And, um, I mean, honestly, like he had such a good eye and that's what makes a good builder. Like you can, you know, you can straight up tell people how to make a pile of snow pretty using the cat to do it. And you can teach them how to cut wedges and everything else, but it really comes down Mm. to like that person's perspective and understanding of snowboarding and the transitions and the flow and how much speed between things. And Sammy had it, you know, and we were we were so yeah we were so oh yeah huge huge so, like, detail oriented like I remember like you know shout to Stegzy Shane McLeod he was the grooming you know the main grooming dude at the time and he'd come in and push push snow into piles and you know no one really knew how to back blade jumps and cut wedges like they just push these piles of snow these like landings with kind of like wild looking knuckles and they're like sweet here's a pile of snow and we just rock up with the snow scoops mm. and start like punching out the corners and getting the tranny all by hand. We took so much pride in it. It was, it was insane. And to look back now, you're kind of like, man, that was, uh, that was crazy what we, what we did. <laughs> yeah. I think when you start, yeah, I think that's spot on. I think when you start taking things into your own context of what's possible based on kind of a narrative that you write in your head with respect to just, well, it's not possible because I don't have this specific tool, you know? Um, yeah. I, I mean, agree. You see posts on Instagram, people like, talking shit on one cat manufacturer or the other it's like you know <laughs> tools are the tools man like you, you get what you're given and you and you work with it and if you're lucky enough to have a rad cat then props to you but you know i mean for me i feel like i started out with like shovels not even like a park rake that, that wasn't even a thing where we were at the time you know a spork mm. or something like that wasn't wasn't around you had like a shovel <laughs> we'd ride our shovels around the yeah. park too it's hilarious and <laughs> feature feature <laughs> <laughs> like the sit on the shovel and ride down to the next one. Yeah, exactly. Holding the shovel, digging the heels in for breaks. Nice. It was like we'd race each other. It was hilarious. But we, oh, that's sick. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we had awesome. scoops and shit like that to, to build the takeoffs. And now, you know, make a back blade and, and put a tail on it. And even if you've got like an older park out that's beat, it's um, it's still still a shitload better than what we had starting out. So, yeah, gotta appreciate the modern modern technology yeah i think that you know the tools of the trade are definitely that's an opinion for sure but i also think that if you've got an objective in front of you and whatever tools in front of you you're going to take advantage of it i think that i think that it would be hilarious just my personal opinion throwing this out there to everybody listening if there was only one objective in front of you and one cat was there and you had to get it done and there were severe consequences otherwise we won't elaborate on what those consequences consequences might be but It'd be interesting to see who would just walk away and who would jump in the machine and get it done. I guess that's where I'm at with it, you know? Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, just because I like a certain type of cat doesn't mean it eats spoonfuls of mayonnaise, you know? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's awesome. some funny shit. Oh, man, man, I haven't seen that one. That was just, no, dude. Oh, that's awesome. Um <laughs> I will say this. I do. Um, I do have a guest question from that we should get into, and uh, it's off topic, but we should definitely get into it. It's from Mr. Torstein Horgmo. So here we go. Oh my man! Hey, what's up? This is Torstein Horgmo tuning into the Blade Dive. Uh, Got a question for my brother Charles Beckinsale, aka Chuckazulu. Uh, wondering uh, if you remember what it felt like bomb dropping a snowcat several times out in the Canadian backcountry with me and uh, 
if that's the gnarliest thing uh, you've done driving a cat, and if not, what is the gnarliest thing you've done um, in your career? Uh, thanks, and uh, hope you guys are well. Miss you, dog. Yeah, I love that dude like a brother. I mean, he's he's been like instrumental in, I guess you know my career and the direction it kind of took. It's um yeah, it, he pushed me so hard on so many projects. And Torstein's like one of those people. Like we were we were psychopaths when it came to like our obsession with like park features and, and what we wanted to do. We'd be like these nerdy dudes that would talk about, you know, this would be cool. No, this would be cool. What if we did that? And like we'd just have these like brainstorming sessions and he was like a harsh critic like with his movie projects with his writing with with everything like he held himself to such a high standard with everything he did and um then that kind of like really spilled over onto me like i was pretty harsh on myself as well like we're pretty similar i guess we had so much fun like designing stuff yeah i feel like the two of you combined would have just been a perfect storm you know what i mean like you lit you're literally learning from him. Oh, and he, absolutely. Yeah, like, and and you're learning from each other. We critique you, but it was it was cool. There was like there was a genuine understanding of each other. Like I would, you know, he would say, "I have this idea," and I was like, "Well, this is how it has to be, so we can do it with the cat." And he'd be like, "Oh, cool. Okay. Well, let's let's do it that way." And you know, we just snowballed off each other. It was it was rad, and he gave me tons of opportunities. And one of those opportunities was Ballface. He wanted to um, build backcountry kickers with a snowcat. And basically let it snow, you know, half a meter or so on top and then come back and shoot it. So we built these kickers that looked like they were, um, you know, Travis Rice's out of flight type stuff. This huge wedges and we, and these, and these rollers, like we, we built these decks and landings, like true table style. But instead of having them square, we like rolled the cat off all the different sides. So it kind of bowled, like boobed out in a way. So it looked like, you know, your um, your Chad's gaps and your pyramid gaps in Utah. And then we had this huge wedge that we'd build and it would step it out, but we would do it, you know, like only about two or three meters wide, not like a full cat width. So it looked like it was done by hand and stacked by hand and it was a natural spot, but it was all man-made. That's awesome. And sure enough, like he was always like, man, he'd jump in the cat and he's like, all right, we're going to drop this thing. And, you know, we're in... <laughs> we're in a bowl in in British Columbia at Baldface, and everywhere is powder. Nothing's been tracked out. So like you've got you're dropping in with like no control, blade steering, tiller steering, and it's bottomless. And you're just like, holy shit! I hope I don't hit those trees over there. And like we all yeah, we even, like went in there. Like Homie Jay, who works for um, Jeff Penzira, would he was like the um, the main cat driver up there. He would come in and like chainsaw down trees um, that we thought might be in the way in case we dropped over because i'm like i don't want to just drop this and like plow into a tree you know i've got no control yeah, yeah, once yeah. we once we break over this thing and um yeah sure enough we we're like chainsawing down trees that we might have hit and sure enough like you know toss time we jump in the cat and he's like all right man we pre-pushed this yesterday like it's set up probably enough let's let's go and i'm like holy shit you're like i'm gonna i'm gonna scare <laughs> the fuck out of you and you're like whoa man chill out <laughs> That's <laughs> like, what wrong with you? And he was like, he was like, shit, awesome. buckle up and just be like, let's get it. Let's go. And you're, like, dude. you're like, all right, dude, it's your project. Like, if I break this thing, you'll pay. So we just, we just break <laughs> over this, this knuckle, you know, that was just like a 35 degree landing that was just like straight into like a probably like 25 degree pitch that hadn't been touched below it. 
and trees and stuff around that we're just oh. like sliding through the place trying to like not leave huge trenches behind us in windrows so that when it snowed there wouldn't be like um carnage behind us <laughs> that, they, that he might hit yeah and uh well i have to i have to ask though did you like once you got to the bottom however you got back up to the top where you're like okay your turn <laughs> you do it <laughs> i want to see you get behind the sticks and do it no, i literally had anxiety like going out there every morning like how many how many times are we about be able to climb this road in this bowl that homie Jay's put in before yeah. he has to start long lapping yeah. and, um, and going around yeah. the next bowl to get back up the top and over. But yeah, you were just like, you were dropping down some pretty loose slides and trying to keep it together and swinging the tiller around, trying to like <laughs> keep the stuff behind you from looking like total dog shit. But it was one of those jobs like you needed a winch for and there's, there's no winches out there. It's just, um, you know, road cats. So you're, uh, you're going for it. Definitely. I don't think there would be Charles Beckinsale without Torstein Horgmo. That's no. my opinion. Throwing it out there. <laughs> I'll back that. Throwing it out there. Yeah. Um, you know, pursuing a career in what you're doing right now, whether it's um, resort operations within a park program or it's consulting, you've had your family right there with you the whole time. And I just think that whether they're traveling with you over to Switzerland or they're in Revelstoke with you or um, they're in uh, the U.S. or you're over in Australia or they're in China or Japan, wherever they are, they've been there with you. And that has to be a motivator for sure. But I, I mean, I guess I'm answering my own question. It is a bit rhetorical, but are they your biggest cheerleader? I have to assume they are. It has to be cool having them with you. Yeah, like for sure. You know, being a dad, you kind of, uh, you definitely want to provide a good future for you, for your kid. And, um, you know, Cole's, Cole's pretty rad. He's like a you know raging little four and a half year old. He's definitely got a lot of energy and he's he's intense. <laughs> but, uh, you know, my my wife is is incredible. Like um, Amy has is backed back my dream one hundred percent the whole time. Like we would literally be going back to back winters between Australia and Squaw Valley and then Whistler, and it was um you know. She, she had a beauty salon business that she closed down so she could, you know, be with me and follow me back and forth. And, uh, and she, she worked whatever jobs she needed to, to, to kind of be with me and, um, just sacrificed a lot. And she's always been the one to ground you, you know, like if you start floating away with, you know, people giving you compliments or too many, like too many guys in your circle that, you know, might, might blow smoke. She, she's always there to kind mm. of ground you and, um, and keep you focused and tell you, you know, haven't made it yet like you know keep keep on it and um and she's definitely sacrificed a lot and um and, and having her there to like help with the business side of things like you know stomping grounds she's a huge part of that she's she's half of half of everything that i've kind of achieved um and uh, you know with, without her i couldn't have couldn't have got to where i am that's that's for sure she's definitely been like a grounding force when it comes to like you know when you're early 20s and um you want to go out to the bar and you know party and bullshit it's uh you know as soon as you you got a, a solid partner you just kind of steer out of that scene and everything's in perspective a lot clearer and what your goals are and what you want in life and that's um that's really kind of maybe just go for it you know wholeheartedly and, and with the blinders on to a point so yeah i think realizing and finding her early on was was absolutely important do you ever run ideas by her do you literally sit there and go okay cool i'm thinking about this here's what my process looks like here's what my here's what i'm thinking like, do you ever lay out a park layout in front of her and go what do you think 
Yeah, like it's so or, funny. Like sometimes I'll do park layouts and she'll be like, yeah, it just, you know, it's just lacking something. You sure it's wow enough? Like, I'm like, whoa, really? That's awesome. Yeah, she, she's, she expects so a lot good. out of me too. And, uh, yeah, it definitely drives me to do better. It's funny. Like I think what, what we've got there is is her safe kind of like not taking too much risk kind of attitude and me like, eh, fuck, you know, let's try it. Like, <laughs> like, I got this idea. Sending it. Yeah, I got this idea and she's like, no, I don't know. Sounds pretty wild. Like, Maybe we should uh, sleep on it. <laughs> but I think it's like the yin and the yang. We're complete opposites. And, um, you know, I think she definitely, you know, brings a lot to, to, to the table for me and I hope so for, for her as well. Um, but, yeah, just definitely bring out the other side of each other a bit. Yeah, that's rad. I think it's cool that you definitely put park layouts in front of her and she has her opinion. That's how it should be, man. That's rad. That's so cool. So cool. Oh, it's insane. I mean, like, honestly, with the COVID stuff, she's handled it incredibly well. And um, and Cole, we just made sure we put him in preschool in places so he could hang with other kids. And he's been snowboarding and swimming in pools and, you know, living living a pretty good life, I would say. But, yeah, you definitely feel a bit guilty that he's away from, from everything else right now. But he's he's not in school yet, so we can kind of do it. We we caught up the other night and we were just talking about being parents and being parents within kind of two things. One being the snow industry and then second being just that navigation piece of either introducing your kiddo to something or having them um, be amongst other people and navigating other parents. But the big kind of point that we talked about was not forcing your your kid into something you know wanting them to kind of fall in love with snowboarding if they so choose to um and not necessarily being that parent on the on the sideline that's going you know you will do this um i thought i thought benel did a really cool job of kind of just describing the guiding them the leading them piece and they'll Mm -hmm. turn out just fine um but that was so cool. Um, and you're along the same lines, man. That was that was super cool to get some insight there. I thought that was really awesome. You're kind of in the same boat. Thanks, man. I mean, yeah, I mean, like I, snowboarding and, you know, the ski industry has literally been my life, you know, like not just like, you know, winters, um, you know, and then summers, like you're, you're year-round southern hemisphere, northern hemisphere, and, you know, that's your circle. And you, and you want your kid to really um, – enjoy it and you don't want to ruin it like for them and force them to like you have to go to lessons and you have to get to this point i expect this like and we we got him we got him a few lessons while i've been here in revelstoke and it's like he straight up doesn't listen to me he's like you know piss off dad i don't want to listen to you like i know how to do it (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah you can't even link turns (laughs) but it's (laughs) but you put him with an instructor and like um you know the instructor's like oh we had a good time and i was like listen like i don't care if he doesn't snowboard the whole time like he wants to go make snow angels and like slide down the slopes and do rolly polies like as long as he's having a good time that's kind of what i want to nurture and when he's ready to kind of like you know start ripping and and come on bigger runs with that like that's that's kind of that's pretty special and i don't want to force it you know um because i think you know yeah. trying to live someone else's dream it never really works out and i think mm. the most important thing in life to find is something that you're passionate about and you you know hopefully can create a living doing it um like i've been able to do and that's all i want from him like i, I don't want him to you know if he wants to drive a cat cool but if you know 
I'm not like whatever he finds, whatever his passion is, is what I'll support. As long as it's not like you know rollerblading or something like that, I'm I'm down. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute, you wouldn't rollerblade? <laughs> Maybe he's like, Dad, I want to be a pro scooter rider. I'm like, No, 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 that's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's man. a lot. That's hilarious. That's awesome. Sorry, one other thing is like you know being in in that line of work where you're, you're in high performance training and you're dealing with national teams and you know there's quite a lot of soccer parents that you kind of meet along the way as well that are just like straight up like you know making their kids like hit these targets do these tricks and like these kids are getting broke off and are genuinely like terrified you're like man you're either gonna like you, you're basically trying to learn these tricks for what like you know there's and you're not going to be the next Mark Morris if your parents are forcing you to go that way like you have to be obsessed and like drive yourself like and it's got to be from your decisions not your parents so it's like you know you're probably missing out on an education and whatever else because your parents wants to go brag about how little johnny got like fifth at the u.s open or something it's like doesn't really matter and at the end of it you're going to be kind of an emotional wreck like you know like coming out of snowboarding is is kind of like a rebirth you know like for the longest time i felt like turning 30 was this uh it's like life is over type thing because by the time you're 30, you've got no sponsors left. There's no income from snowboarding and you will mm. – life goes downhill. But, I mean, one thing I found is life is kind of like chapters and it just keeps mm. getting better. Like what you found like drove you in your 20s isn't necessarily going to be what drives you in your 30s. Like, you know, you, your goals kind of readjust and you have a kid and snowboarding's fun because you do it with your friends and you have a few beers afterwards or, you know. Like it's a social thing more so than like I have to learn this trick today. I have to do a double cork turn. Like you can, yeah, it's just different goals and different kind of ways to kind of feel your self-worth, I think. That's awesome. So cool. Um, so the stomping grounds. I think this is probably also a topic of conversation that everybody wants to know the insider information, but it's also a business. And so I won't pry too much, but I just want to stick to maybe the embryonic idea um, I know you're a hell of a drawer, like that, a sketcher. Like I, you know, when you talk about creating things and it's on computer and it's with SketchUp or it's digital or it's CAD or whatever, I know because I've seen your drawings, you've drawn them for me and I know that you're a really good artist on paper. So you can put an idea on paper and it can be a jump, it can be a rail, it can be a, a trail layout, it can be whatever. It's got the shading, it's got the highlighting, I mean, it's all there. But the but the concepts of what that idea was originally is kind of where I want you to go and just let us in on the origin of it all. So I guess um, it kind of started like the Canadian team were working really closely with me. Uh, I think that time like, I was doing all their high performance training and it was before I worked directly for them, I was working for Whistle Blackham. Nowadays I'm I'm uh, kind of on contract with them to to do all their private builds, um, which has been amazing, and they're awesome to work with. Shout out to Chris for Quickie, but uh, yeah, I mean, basically, I just started thinking like all these national teams, like there was different national teams hitting me up because the Canadian team were just like, you know, they're talented, an incredible group of human beings on their own right, but they were just stacking like podium sweeps. And everyone's like, man, it's because they got sled laps and private training. And you had Torstein basically telling the Norwegian team, like, Sondre and Pear, like, you know, it's because they got, it's because they got their own private builds and sleds and they got Charles building jumps. And 
we got to we got to get Charles. So it was like this thing where like people were hitting me up to come build for them, and you know I'm like Canadian team and my boys, and but I'm also like really good friends with Sandra and Pear and the, the Norwegian team and those riders. Like it's a small industry, you're friends with everyone, and I kind of saw there was like a demand there. People would go to like people would come to Perisha for a few years now to like instead of going to New Zealand to ride the the jump line we we're building, they were coming to Whistle Blackham to ride the the black park and you can see like you'd post something on Instagram and then like there'd be comments from like some of the pros and then a few weeks later they turn up on a plane to ride the jumps and you're like, man, you're kind of like, you're drawing people to places that are making, you know, the money off your back. And it got to the point where, you know, which is no problem. That's what you signed up for. But it got to the point where I was like doing these photo shoots every spring and I love doing it. Like it was my passion and I would, still do that shit for free because it's fun but um these these projects were coming to to whistler and they were asking for me to build them and I'm like man like i should grow a pair and like go out on my own and um and then i just and i was like what if um you know like i, I was thinking about those like autumn camps like prime park sessions and stuff that had been going for a couple of years at the time and i was at dinner one night just with a friend uh a swiss friend of mine fabia was at the time running the TTR World Tour and she I was like I got this idea like what do you think I want to like find a glacier somewhere in Europe where I can basically bring every national team in the world together to ride like perfect jump line and transition features and a half pipe because I was like you know there's the the slope style and the big air and the half pipe disciplines and the ski and snowboard and all of them like what if what if you could kind of get all those national teams together um and it's you know, basically, what if we crowdfunded a high-end park build that was kind of like super park that everyone could come to and like progressively push each other in a non-competitive format and see what happens? And sure enough, like the Canadians are like, if you do that, Charles, we're there. And the Norwegians and um, you know, there was the Austrians as well. Like there was there was a few teams straight off the bat were like, I just flooded the idea, and they're like, we're in. If you do it, we're in. And I knew I had enough buy-in to just like just get it off the ground. So I, I thought, you know, I'll give it a go. And then we ended up. Um, I was on a DC team trip in Maribel in France, like partying and <laughs> having a great time. And then Sonia, uh, sorry, not uh, Fabia, called me up and she's like, "Hey, um, I saw you in Maribel. You should come to Zermatt." I'm like, "Oh, I don't know, like." I should probably get home. I've been on China World Cup, and now I'm, you know, now I'm here uh, in, in France, partying. Amy wants me home, but she's like, honestly, you're here. Like, I'm booking your hotel room in Zermatt, and you're gonna come and you're gonna pitch your idea. You have to do it. No like, way. Yeah, and I was like, what? She's like, yeah, absolutely. I'm not taking no for an answer. The hotel room's booked. Change your fucking flight. <laughs> and I was Holy like, shit. man, it was like one of those pivotal moments in your life where like it just you know fate grabbed you and pulled you to the side and i literally was like mm. yeah let's try and we got there and she hustled and in like a, a meeting with the ceo heads of marketing and everything the next day which is insane like anyone that works at a resort knows how hard it is to get the ceo's ear for anything and just to come in like cold canvas <laughs> you know i put my glasses on try to look smart had some like faggy hairdo at the time <laughs> i was like <laughs> rolled in there with a button-up shirt trying to look professional and they're like, oh, so what's your idea? And I'm like, well, I want to pay for the cats. I want to rent your cats and I want to build build a park and a half button. 
and I'm going to bring every national team in the world. And I was like confident and bullshitting my way through it. And they're like, wow, that sounds great. This is what the cat time is going to cost, blah, blah, blah. And then next thing you know, like we got an interview over at Sasfay as well because um, it's another amazing glacier resort. So we popped over there and um, they were like, listen, we've, we're doing like a summer park. We've got like the, the decks and the landings and the bulk pushings kind of in place. Like you can come in and just remodel the place um, when you want to and pay for the cat time. And for us, the cat time was slightly cheaper than what the map was going to charge. And the, um, you know, the, 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 the skeleton of, of what you needed was kind of sitting there in a way with, with the bulk pushing done. So mm. we were like, this, this makes sense. So we, we started there and we brought the teams in um, and the Swiss team were heavily involved as well because we were like, you know, in Switzerland, like let's, let's work together. And um, yeah, first year we did slope style and we, we did just enough people. And then that spring we, you know, the Swiss team, like Pepe, the Swiss team was like, Oh, you know what? That was so good. Let's do, um, let's try and do a spring one. It was just before the Olympics, so we ended up um, doing one in Corvatch because Pepe lined that up. So we went to Corvatch and did a, um, a spring camp there, which was pretty good. We had the UK team there and, like, um, you know, the Norwegians and I think the Austrians. But it was um, it was just, like, a, another high-end, high-performance session. And Brand and I built, built both of them and, um, yeah, had, had the, uh, the teams come out and we, we kind of pulled it off twice. So then Sasfay turned into an annual thing and um, it just kind of grew every year to something that's like quite enormous now. And um, and we're stoked, super proud of it. And you know, now we like helicopter up airbags, helicopter up like sleds so we can drive around and rake everything and rent our own cats. So we bring our own cats in through Prenoff because um, the Stomping Grounds has an amazing partnership with them um, where they support us with, with you know a good a good leasing arrangement for the for the cat there. So we bring in our own pre-north uh, by next winch and, and uh, that builds the pipe and then comes out of the slope style and, and I kind of take it from there. So Jeremy's Jeremy Carpenter is the, the man behind the half pipe and, you know, he's incredible, like OCD perfectionist. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's it's he and Frank are the, the guys that are at the very top of this thing. And, um, and, you know, the first year we did it, I had Frank and Jeremy there, but I couldn't couldn't afford to have two contractors there doing the same thing and Jeremy was you know doesn't have have kids and everything else so he could be there for a long period and and uh and kill himself for this project so yeah it just is it's Jeremy the, the half pipe is all Jeremy and then the slope style is Brandon and I and um and you know like Kobe Kobe Worsh at the time as well and um yeah we we kind of worked well together and, and did some incredible shit and uh we just we just uh, met with the CEOs over um, a Zoom chat this morning and set the dates for this year. So it's, it's happening again in October. Hopefully the pandemic doesn't rock us. But we'll, uh, we we got away unscathed last year. There was a lot of pent up um, pent up energy, and we had the biggest turnout we've ever had. And that was like during the pandemic before Switzerland got hit pretty bad. I think we we were down to the last two days, and the pandemic kind of rolled in and. Everyone started fleeing the country, <laughs> but um, yeah, it was kind of like it was almost like a false, like a false uh, sense of optimism. You know the, mm. you know with the pandemic, we were, we had to lease a cat, get it up on the glacier in May, not knowing if I could even get out of the country or Jeremy could get it from the states with the way they're handling it into Switzerland, and then 
there's just so many variables and we literally have to commit to to getting the cat up there and paying a bunch of money on something that might not happen it was terrifying um mm. and then yeah it was the best best session we've ever had as far as like numbers and stuff and, and probably the product and then you know the rest of the year i was like oh sweet we pulled that off best year ever let's let's go and like and then i just rolled into this wave of like cancelled project after cancelled project after cancelled project i mean this this year has just been like crazy we i was supposed to build the canadian world cup in calgary that got cancelled a few weeks before it happened um and then i was like well i, I can't hang out in austria and do the world cup figure there because i was worried about getting trapped out of canada so we, we came straight to canada for the for the canadian team um training and the, the world cup build and then basically just work with the Canadian team and they've, they've been the ones that kind of held the season up for us because without them, we probably would have just sat around unemployed the entire time. And, um, yeah, then it brings, brings me to the Red Bull project here in, in, uh, in Revelstoke. That was 12 months of planning, a couple of site visits before we even got to this point. We'd leased cats. We had shipped out half pipe cutters from Australia <laughs> that we'd bought for it. And, uh, yeah, FIS announced their World Cup in Aspen, and that was the same dates that we were doing this. And there was like a huge backcountry component, heli days lined up, like you know, a huge slope style sitting on top of the mountain in this backcountry zone. It was just going to be like the biggest project, you know, that anyone had seen in a few years here. And um, yeah, it all just kind of came unstuck because of a scheduling conflict with FIS and it being an Olympic qualifying year. So that just got railroaded. And because pushing back would have pushed us in the spring, we had to cancel the whole thing. Well, what if we what if we looked at it like this? What if we just said, I think if we were to surmise, because ultimately there's an investment that's involved, period. Yeah. And you know, we don't have to go into the dollars and cents of it, but you've started a business. And because of everything else that every other business has experienced you're just as much at risk at, for a loss as every other small business that's out there. And so I'm just trying to help just the listener audience understand the picture that Charles is trying to paint here with respect to just money up front, getting a product out there, and then having people participating in it. It's super important to understand those three things. And I just, there's so much that you're, putting out there like you've just you've just unraveled so much with um the contacts that you made people um sticking their necks out for you you've established relationships to obtain access to a glacier you've put together a team ultimately there's still risk involved with what COVID has brought you but you've still pushed through and prevailed and that is just i mean to me that's awesome it's not just the because when you break it down even further and you look at the veil that is social media, it's great that there are pictures out there that highlight what you're doing. But there's got to be stress involved, man, with all that. Like, holy shit. I yeah, can't even honestly, imagine. Like, yeah. Social media is the best 5% of your entire life. It's not, yeah. like, it's not the baseline. And I think a lot of people kind of get that wrong. Like, I mean, this... Yeah, I mean, like starting the stomping grounds, like it was such a fucking wild risk. And like my wife was like, just come home. Like, you know, I, I'm sure you could do it, but like, you know, let's think it over a bit. And I was like, no, I'm I'm going to try this. And I, I went to the two resorts, you know, 
thanks to Fabia really pushing to make that happen and lining up the contacts to do it. And then when we were there, it was like, um, you know, you're really just like you're taking a gamble. Like I'd, I'd been used to working at resorts and going back-to-back winners for, for like 15 years at that time probably. And I was at the point where, you know, we would go to Whistler and it cost a living and, and the travel and the rest of it. We'd come home with like $17,000 credit card debt most years that I was lucky oh. enough to have a good good job at Paris. And my wife had a good job managing a jewelry store that we would pay off the debt completely and then save enough to like pay bonds and everything else to go back to Whistler so we could work and run up a debt again. And, mm. you know, it was a lifestyle, like the whole thing. But, I mean, we got to like, you know, pretty much 30. And, you know, we'd, we'd, I'd got to the point where I'd been contracting and had, had made, like, you know, had a good thing with Whistler where I was able to step out and go do some like World Cups and do some contract work and then come back and and have a, have a normal job as well. So I was, you know, I, I, for the first time in my life, been able to save like a bit of coin. And when we started the stomping grounds, I think, you know, I had like 50 grand that was like for a house deposit. And that was like, my entire life savings between the two of us. And I was like, I'm putting that up to make this happen. And if it fails, I'm losing my life savings. And that's the thing. Like a lot of people go, Oh yeah, well I could do it. Or, or, you know, but I mean, I don't know how many people would be willing to take that risk after not having anything for so long, (laughs) finally having, having two pennies to rub together and just like, you know, working so hard to get to that point. And then just going, I'm going to put it all on black and, follow my guts on this one and you know it just comes down to relationships again like i i wasn't stepping into it blind like i talked so much about it i'd convince myself into it i'd like talk to people about it to the point where if i didn't do it i look like i was full of shit so i'd really back myself into a corner and i think you know the people around me like the like chris wickwicky and the canadian team and like you know the swiss team and you know, the Norwegians, like all your day ones, like they really got behind it. And then the second year, the US team came on board and it went from like, you know, making like a tiny bit of profit to like, you know, being something that you're like, oh, this is a business now. I can, you know, do like adult things moving forward. Because, you know, mm. they came in like 70 athletes deep and we were like, holy shit, like that's that's not a, that's a super team. <laughs> it's so big mm. and there's so much support for, for those guys and they got such a, amazing program as well and we were just you know we had the half pipe we had the slope style you know we we ticked all these disciplines and um everyone could kind of come in and get it in the one spot because the other high performance camps were just offering like you know jumps and maybe one or two rails where it was like we were offering like rail lines and you know jump like a big jump line with transition features which are kind of a bit of a staple now and we had the half pipe and then we were helling up airbags because we you know, we had enough sign-ups so we could start like renting the airbag and like helling up the airbag. Like the airbag cost alone were, like you know sixteen grand or something. Retarded because it, we Damn. needed like a double rotor heli to get it up from the valley, and because you're you're so high up on that glacier, the the air is so thin that um, you need the the extra rotors, I guess. And you know, for, for me coming from Australia, where you're worried about hitting dirt and not having enough snow, to being on a glacier where you're worried about losing a cat in a crevasse if you bust up a snow bridge that you didn't know was under there. It's, um, mm. you know, like I got out of a cat one night and was like having a piss near the, um, the, the fuel kind of, um, module we, we brought over to the half pipe site. And I was like standing there next to it 
and I looked over to like just left of my foot and there was like a bottomless crack that just opened up Dude. it opened up in the snow <laughs> right next to where the fuel oh, was sitting <laughs> I was like holy oh. and they were like yeah when you get like when you need to get out for a piss like don't step off your tracks <laughs> yeah wow but yeah it's it's a whole different world and people you know people at resorts you know even like us in Australia like there is like levels to that stuff and what they do on glaciers in Europe you know some of them are like 90 meters deep it's just yeah so much respect for like you know Dominic and and uh, Calvin Mountain and people like that that just like that's their daily life is dealing with a huge chunk of ice that is sliding down the hill at 30 meters a year mm. and plugging holes with excavators once a year so that they can hopefully get through a season driving their cats over these things without <laughs> losing yeah. something into them. Like, you know, the whole thing is literally moving under your feet. It's, it's surreal. Um, I do have another guest question I want to throw at you. And uh, let me play that for you. It's from Mr. Ryan Tini. Here we go. Hey, Charles, Ryan Taney here with a couple of guest questions. Um, I wanted to know, you know, coming from having such a great snowboarding background and being a sponsored snowboarder, um, I don't see a lot of cat drivers out there at sort of your level or where you were. Do you think this has given you an edge? And the other question is, you know, back in the day when we were doing our first season in Whistler, we hit the tanning salon. Uh, pretty sure you were the one to convince me to go do that, and you uh, you said we should put something over our um, man junk to not get it burnt. Do you remember what that was? <laughs> wow, really, uh, really dropped me in it there. <laughs> yeah, I'm not the same guy anymore. <laughs> That's fucking hilarious. Um, yeah, well, I guess we'll follow up with a funny one first. Um, yeah, like when we were in Whistler, like we were both young and single and like I was underage, fake ID. You know, we'd grown up surfing and we're pretty vain. Um, you know, we're used to having tans and we, you know, obviously we were down with chicks that were brown and there was a couple of hot chicks at the tanning salon. Got to know and we'd go in there and like catch catch a couple of shades darker, you know. <laughs> you just go like go out clubbing and hang out under the blue lights and pull a couple extra chicks. <laughs> it was it was fucking wild times. And yeah, we put socks over our junk. <laughs> you don't want to like you don't want to get flaky balls, man. <laughs> oh, that's uh, hilarious. Yeah. That's I mean, awesome. I mean, we wore headbands and shit back then too. Uh, stuff I would never do anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but it was fun. <laughs> oh man, that's great. That's priceless. <laughs> what was the first part of that question before I got thrown under the bus? <laughs> I can't even remember anymore. <laughs> no, I was about snowboarding and shit. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, it I definitely mean, was. Your your pro rider, uh, just that influence on how you operate and what you build. Uh, yeah, dude, uh, honestly. Yeah, I think I think it really comes down to yeah how like the experience you've had riding jumps, what you liked, what you didn't like, how your rail takeoffs you know should be because of you know you don't want to ride on down rail they suck like you know you want to have a decent ollie on if you're doing a backflip or something you don't want to like ollie over the rail you want to catch it on the inside so and you don't want to anti pop it like just all like the little things that you'd like be super 
you know, unless you're a rider, you're kind of not in tune with. And that's like the hard part is like a lot of, there's like a handful of park builders are like incredibly good that don't ride that can somehow understand that stuff. But um, mm-hmm. I feel like, yeah, the, the best, almost always the best park builders are the ones that can, can ride it well enough to understand the transitions and stuff. And I mean, there was like people like Adam Galbraith um, back in the day that didn't ride the features, but super in tune. Like they would sit there on their sled during the day and watch people hit the jumps and watch people ride the features. And that's how they kind of got their feedback. But for me, it was like always firsthand. Like, I mean, even even in Whistler, like I would I would build the, the big jump line, like the, the XL or Black Park jumps. They're like 60 to, you know, like 50 to 70 feet at that time. And I would literally go in the next morning, even if it was puking snow and white out, barely see the jumps, and I would like hit them because I didn't want anyone else hitting them before I'd hit them in case they sucked. So I could mm. quickly quickly tweak them that night before the sun came out the next day. And everyone's like, whoa, these are the best jumps we've ever hit. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> cool. yeah. What a fluke. What a fluke, yeah. man. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, yeah. yeah. I came up and well, I hit kind of, it and it made it maybe needed like one more back blade or something. And I would yeah. do that next day it'd be dialed. But Yeah. But so it's kinda of like I mean you get out of it what you put into it. Yeah, I know? mean like it's it's hard. Like I I don't know many circumstances where you would find someone like mentally it's kinda of unhealthy to be that obsessed with your job. <laughs> Uh, but, I, mean, but, uh, I don't know man like if you're yeah. pa- i mean the, the the real kicker and this i think this is the question really of the entire episode i think this is just why i really there are so many people out there and it's just a hot topic to talk about it really is um why is it that so many writers professional writers trust your product offering so much why is that i mean i just think that is the question of the episode think where it all started from is like you know being a writer and writing with like guys like Torstein and and um and you know now more recently like working with Mark Morris a lot as well and um you know it's just yeah like half the time you'd rock up to a session and and you would ask like how's the jump but not in a way that's like I'm just looking for a bit of skin here like you would Mm. genuinely ask how the jump is and like can can I tweak anything to make it better like is there something you don't like like and and the comfort from the riders, they're just like, yeah, Charles, like you're approachable. Like you're not coming here looking for like praise. You just you want to genuinely know how to how to improve this thing. And and there's no like you know if they go well, you know, like it could be like it could be a little bit steeper. It could be this. Like I'm not gonna go. Oh well, oh. you know, like you see some pillars get so upset about it. <laughs> like, is it the people that typically eat spoonfuls of mayonnaise? Yeah, probably. Is that what they is that is that that is that that individual? Yeah, well, I don't yeah. know him personally, but yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, yeah, it's just like you know, you've got to like wear your heart on your sleeve. But ultimately, like, you can't get better from praise. You can only get better from like constructive criticism. So you have to seek it out, even if like you know, a lot of times I'm in a position where, I'll, like, I work with a Canadian snowboard team like super closely. Like they're my, you know, like they're my biggest kind of supporters and like. Chris Wickwicky, the, the the team coach, and all the riders have like been hugely responsible for like, you know, I guess my success in a way, and and they just back my work like, just even when Vale came in to take over Whistler Blackcomb and my visa wasn't renewed because I was 31, they went and got mm. me a visa to work under them as a contractor. Like they believed in me so much, and you know when I thought it could have been over, they kind of like 
rejuvenated my career, you know, and, and kind of working with those guys is, um, you know, you'll ask the kids on the team, like, how is it? And they're like, oh, it's Charles. Like, you don't want to say anything, you know, you don't want to say the, say it sucks, you know? And, and they'll be like, everything's sick. Oh, it's awesome. And you're like, oh, fuck, great. Like, cool. And I'll just go straight over to Mark and be like, hey, what's up? Like, tell me, tell me what, what I need to hear. And he's like, yeah, you know, like, could do a little bit more pop. Um, you know, like, I, I think if you, Mark will always ask the land to be steeper, even when it's not really necessary. <laughs> mm. And then, you know, Max Perot will always ask for, like, a little bit more pop, you know, because he, doesn't maybe pop as quite as much as like say someone like Mark on a backside spin when he spins cab. So you kind of mm. have to like know the riders as well as like, you know, what to listen for. And maybe when, you know, when a weakness in their riding is um, they're asking for, for something with the jump to compensate that, that the other riders don't necessarily need. So it's about like, you know, reading, reading the people that are riding it and what they need from it. And I think, if you're the kind of guy that can just like rock up and be like, what's the speed boys? And just like launch into a back five or a front three, like, nothing crazy, but just do it well. Um, you know, and then you can feel the jump for yourself as well and be like, oh, no, I, I agree. Like it could be a touch sleeper in the landing or could, could do with this. Like I think a lot of like credibility comes from that too. And I mean, granted, not everyone can, can hit a 60 foot jump. Um, so, I mean, like, you know, if you can't, there's like no shame in that. Just, just be humble and like genuinely ask for like constructive criticism to help yourself get better. Yeah. Being approachable is super important because when you put your guard up and you've got that wall there and, and you just really kind of cross your arms in the conversation and go, well, you know, it's my way or the highway. I mean, the amount of times you see people just come in literally to, to try and collect a high five and let people know that they, they drive a cat and they built that. It's like, it's like, fuck man. You, like, you have a girlfriend or something just to like keep your keep your head in check because it's mm. kind of like cringeworthy to watch that shit yeah yeah it's interesting i mean i just think when you're trying to do that um all you're doing is ultimately i mean you're going to inevitably end up hurting somebody right if you're not really willing to accept criticism and go yeah man it is what it is like i've already spent enough time building this i'm not going to dive into this any further um it's just it's just not going to happen. Um, then you end up, especially on the larger features, and you're not willing to make the adjustments just because you're being pig-headed and stubborn. Like that's when people I mean, get hurt. There's there's obviously like other ends of the spectrum too. I mean, you probably heard similar stories that like, you know, if you got a photo, like we had a Nike photo shoot I built a jump for, and it was like, it was at the time like triple corks were just starting to happen, and um, I think it was like, Yerman Bratton was there for the shoot, and then there's like you know Austin's. Austin Smith and a few other people that like weren't crazy park jumpers. They were kind of more backcountry people at that time and just coming to the park shoot because it was Nike. And, um, and then they're like, Hey man, can you like shave like, you know, 10 feet off this thing? You know, like it's, it's 80 feet. It's like a photo shoot jump, you know, like you don't build 60 foot photo shoot jumps at that point. Mm. I mean, you might now, but it's like back then it was, you know, like it was a true table jump. It was like a, a big roller kind of style jump. You know, like at the time, I think like TJ was building like really similar jumps and we <laughs> kind of always like wondering who did it first, whether it was he or I. And it was, it was kind of funny because we had like, you know, it was the classic roller with the sides cut out and everything. And oh, I'll know. call him out right now. TJ, you need to come on the show. Get on the blade dive. Come on, bro. We got to figure yeah. out who did it first. Let's see some banter, dude. Let's see it. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's but, yeah. do it. 
but yeah, honestly, like you know, TJ is another one like I really followed closely. Like Instagram was like a whole new world for the for the park building stuff. You could see what everyone else is doing, and you know, like put your stuff out there as well. And and you know, riders would like it got to the point where like on Whistler Blackham you would be building stuff and putting photos up at the end of your shift, which is common now, but back then it wasn't really. And all the riders were like, oh, we're going to follow Charles. Like, we'll see what got built before, you know, it comes out on the, the other Instagram page for Whistler Parks. So it was just like this cool following of like the right right riders and the right pros. And you kind of ended up building pretty good relationships. You'd take requests on there of what people wanted to build and stuff. Wow. And, and it was like you kind of developed a relationship with a lot of the, the local riders. And I think that was kind of huge and definitely helped because, I mean, people could come out there and just say, ah, oh, Charles, like, I don't know, that jump wasn't right or, you know, we didn't like that rail set up. You know what you should do there? <laughs> and, uh, you know, sometimes some of it was, like, kind of whack and other times it was justified. So, yeah, it was, it was a direct line. Yeah, if we were to jump back a little bit and kind of unpack what it looked like for you being a professional snowboarder and then now you're a dad, in hindsight, do you kind of look back at those days while you were pro and going – man, um, wow, I went through a lot there, whether it was emotionally or the relationships along the way, however it was. But do you feel like that kind of prepared you more because you went through so much? Because when you're a pro, it's not like it's, hey, man, here's a check and have a nice day. It's like, well, okay, beyond that, I still have to take care of myself as a human being. So I guess I'd be curious there, like, what was that like? was there so much stress that it ultimately pushed you to just do what you needed to do to continue to be you and the learning experiences that came from that, I think would really be the, the question. Uh, I might have to take two takes to this one, but honestly, like it, for me, it was, um, you know, you, you kind of, by the time I was like 17, I was making, you know, pretty good paychecks, snowboarding and could go overseas for the whole, whole season and, go on trips and shoot for the magazines and the, and the videos and the, the media landscape back then was like so different. Like we didn't have like high speed internet and Transworld and snowboarder weren't available in Australia unless you really look for them. We had mm. like three magazines in Australia and New Zealand and that was kind of all we saw in our bubble really. And, um, you know, Instagram wasn't there feeding you like people from Europe or North America. Like we were, you know, like your JP walkers, like if you were <clears throat> in a position where you, could access like decade and the Mac dog videos and stuff. Um, and really like were a scholar in the sport. You knew who those guys were, but in Australia, like, you know, there were kids like me and Ryan Tini and, um, you know, Nick Gregory and people like that, that were the, the, um, you know, the JP walkers and the Devon Walsh of our little bubble. And you were put on a pretty crazy pedestal for, I mean, the level of skills we had versus, you know, the, the international level, but that's all the local people in New Zealand and Australia really knew. Um, and we, you know, I would, I would work my ass off for the video parts. Like I would get closing section in most of the videos I filmed in during that kind of era. And we had, we had the, the, the ads with like dragon and rusty at the time were pretty big, the shop fronts and the rest of it. And it was like, it was kind of a weird bubble where you were kind of put on this pedestal that I don't think would be the case these days. And, um, yeah, it was it was cool, but I think the relationships and the marketing and the contract negotiation as a writer and being exposed to that stuff kind of early on, like when it came to like you grew up fast, and then coming into park building, like you were pretty savvy about the marketing and stuff, and I think that really crossed over into the 
the park management marketing side for me. Like, mm. um, I ended up just, um, you know, I was still, I would work at Threadbow as a, you know, a, a park manager <laughs> by the time I was 18 and I was still snowboarding professionally for a while after that. And I would kind of, you know, work Threadbow during the winters, take time off to do a few events and stuff and go shooting. But the most, you were just working there during the, the off season, the way we looked at it. And then you'd film and shoot when you're in, you know, Canada or North America. So that was kind of your work, work time. And then you'd come home and, and build a park. And, um, it was pretty cool, but you know, basically it came to when I was about like 21, the like guy overshot a jump that I, I hadn't built it myself, but I'd kind of like sat in the cat next to Stegsy and had, you know, he built it and it was a, it was a really fun jump. But I was like, oh, you know, at that time I tested everything I built, you know, I've worked on. Mm. Shouldn't say built. Um, sat in the passenger seat for. And um, you know, I I I just charged into this jump. It was for a big air and did a back one first hit and I like was still going up as I passed the knuckle. And next thing I remember mm. is just like, you know, waking up, blood all over my face and like my my shoulder was completely dislocated. Um, and I got taken down to the medical center and basically got told that my you know, I dislocated my shoulder so badly that all the tendons and the, um, the nerves had, had kind of ripped out and I had to mm. take heavy probably like nine months off because of that. And that was kind of the reality check where you're like, uh, like no one could tell me what was wrong with the shoulder. Like I couldn't lift it because the, the deltoid muscle had kind of basically had the lights turned off on it and didn't work. And they were like, you probably can't snowboard again because you can't lift your shoulder up past, you know, past this point. And, um, I got neurosurgery and like we just went through the ringer for 12 months. And then I eventually came back and, you know, went to the mountain lab and tried to film for the movie. But at that point I was like, I just, I can't pick up where I left off. And um, I still snowboarded and filmed after that point, but I kind of gave up the dream of, you know, going global pro like Torstein and the other guys are doing. And we were all on the same team. And, and I, that's kind of how I met Torstein is we were you know, on, the, on the team together as, as AMS. And at that point, I just kind of put my energy more so in park building, kept the snowboarding going on a local level, um, just to kind of, you know, I, I was passionate about it. I loved it. You know, I still wanted to get all these tricks on handrails and backcountry kickers and, you know, but I just wasn't, I knew I couldn't take the slams I used to, so I couldn't push myself the way I used to. And, and I just focused on the park building side of it. And that was kind of like, you know, my tunnel vision now was like getting getting good at that craft. Um and it was it was awesome because like at that point I was like filming video parts and also learning how to drive cats in in Squaw Valley and uh, it was I was having snowboarding basically subsidize my like start of my grooming career when you're making like peanuts so yeah well if if we go back to a little bit more t- with just respect to where that so Threadbow right you were spending time basically doing seasons in North America and then doing seasons in Australia and your contribution and construction from the park aspect of things was originally starting at Threadbow, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And so you were the manager there doing that, building a park there alongside whether it was riding in the seat or if it was um, with a rake or the shovel, but eventually you got the machine there. And I mean, you spent so much time at Threadbow. Um, that it definitely, I feel like it kind of evolved, um, into something great, but it also helped transform you into, uh, who you wanted to eventually become or pursue a career in. 
So I don't know, maybe just skim that for sure. Like just Threadbow in general and your, in your time there. I mean, you hit it already a little bit, but. Yeah. I mean, I grew up riding Threadbow. So it was like, you know, I had just fond memories of it. It's my home hill and, um, you know, working the park there, like working your way up. We had such a a rad crew around us. We had such a good time at work all the time. We're all friends and we'd, we'd all shred. And we had a really like, you know, the park crew at Threadbow was like, we're all rippers, you know? And we would just like session everything together and try and outdo each other. It was fun. But with the with the park building side of it, you know, like we would sit in the cat with like some of the older park rumors like Stegzy and well Stegzy wasn't old, <laughs> but you know, like we'd sit in the cat with these guys that were grooming runs and um, you know, we're, we're, we're building park, but we you know, we didn't know how to do what we do with the machines now and, and they didn't either. So, you know, they knew how to drive drive a cat really well, but not the steps to go through so we were all kind of figuring it out together and you know we'd be like try this do that and they're like oh shut the fuck up and like you know get to the point where it sticks you'd be like get out of the cat you're pissing me off <laughs> <laughs> and we would literally yeah. go oh that's good enough fuck it we'll just do it by hand like let's, let's get the let's get the scoops out boys you know and uh he <laughs> would just chain gang on the jumps and stuff but you know we had we had a good park and i think at that time you know i, I went to to night school like tafe couple nights a week and learn how to do the steel work and stuff so i could build the rails i mean i built first round of um rails or myself did you get a did you get a certification from that school are you a certified what oh wow yeah but like i mean basic welding skills i went on to like you know do tons of it on my own and um and get quite good at it but at the start it was just like a basic certificate and i was using a stick welder and the welds were shit um you know (laughs) But, but, so it was, remain, but we you, build we build rails and i did it for free i was like <laughs> i just want to build rails so we yeah, yeah. i would build the rails like i'd go and get like scrap steel from the tip and shit because there was a, a like a nothing budget and then i would build these rails in like my um my in-laws driveway <laughs> i feel like no way. i mean <laughs> your, awesome. your boyfriend's insane and <laughs> i'd be building these rails getting in the way and like we'd try to and pick the rails up we'd set them up and yeah we built like you know shit out of like stacks of like old tires and stuff like that you could bonk and like just junk out shit which is pretty pretty trendy back then and uh did did uh did amy's dad ever come out and kind of geek out with you on the real building or was he like hey man you know uh classic about this situation just, just come out and tell you shit your welds are and go back inside <laughs> it was, it was great. yeah man that beat sucks yeah. <laughs> pretty much oh uh, that's looks that's like great. bird shit cool <laughs> constructed what is that a worm (laughs) (laughs) oh man that's great that's awesome so definitely like father-in-law bonding right there yeah that's great i mean he's he's just like he's he's so gruff my father-in-law like he he drives a big um like a a backhoe and you know he says about like three words a day so (laughs) sweet hello how are you staunch aussie bloke yeah but um wow yeah i mean like the the threadbow stuff like you know doing things those ways just made me really want to get in the cat and just go and learn. Like, cause we went to star Wars, um, and rode like, rode all these big jumps that like the guys from the U S would come out and build like Mike Gershner and, um, Jeff Patterson, you know, like shouts to Jeff Patterson. And, um, we would just come down there and be like, wow, these guys are like from the future. Like we're building this shit with a cat and we were just spinning out and everyone's just like, Oh, let's fucking hit it. Like it's massive. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was gonna. I was definitely gonna ask that because 
and I and I definitely don't want to come across as that asshole, but when you're there and you and you mentioned just the bubble, like your your comparison, your contrast is really between you know the North American winter and the Australian winter, and then the bubble that is kind of the expectation of the folks that you're around. You've got you and you've got Ryan, and you're doing your thing, but you're also being put on that pedestal. So whether the park builder was there in country or out of country, when you had somebody show up like a Mike Gershner or a Patterson or a Jeremy Cooper or Sam Poffley, you had those people show up at falls where you literally going like, where'd this guy come from? Like where, where were they? I want to be there. How did they get to do that? Like where was that ever? And I guess that's the question. hope that didn't come across wrong, but I just, were you looking, were you, were you looking at that going like, dude, we can do this here. I'm just going to have to step up and do it. Or I'm going to have to explain that we need this up here at Threadbow. Or how did that, were you thinking that at all? I mean, because I thought that was so cool. Your comment about these guys are from the future. Dude, they're yeah, they're, they're on another level. Like we'd never seen that, that stuff before. And, you know, honestly, like I'd go to Whistle Blackham and ride the park there when I was like 17 and 18. And because they had the biggest jumps. Like back then, everyone was like trying to build the biggest stuff. And like you'd go to yeah. like, it was like Park City and Mammoth and like Mammoth have like a 90 foot jump in there, like main park. And you're like, holy shit. And then, you know, June, June Mountain had like this gun smoke jump line of like jump starting at like 70 foot and ending at 110. And we'd go down there in spring just to shoot because of those jumps. And, um, you know, we'd, we'd be in Whistler riding the, the Black Park all, all winter and then springtime would hit and we'd go on trips down to Mammoth and shoot. And um, you'd just be chasing like these like massive jumps. And you'd hit like, you know, back then you'd hit some like pretty sketchy big jumps. But I mean, the Gunsmoke jump line, that was kind of like that era where everything was still step down, but the there were like highway off ramps that felt like those takeoffs. You'd just be like straight airing a 90 footer at, you know, the second last jump and like landing in a tuck and your jacket felt like it was going to just rip off you. Or like you would wow. ch- charge off this like 110 foot jump, do like a back five or something. And you were just like, the whole time your adrenaline's just like pulsing through you. It was insane. <laughs> wow but yeah but you just yeah like you know you have moments where you're like man that thing's 110 feet like i don't want to hit it and the the photographer would be like we didn't bring you down here on the on the magazine's budget for you like fuck around the 70 footer (laughs) you're like oh this is a job yeah but but yeah yeah, i mean like when you were in the zone and hitting it it was the sickest thing you'd ever done and probably still is you know but it's just um yeah, just seeing that, that level of building, like you could only picture it in like places like Whistle Blackham or Mammoth and stuff or June and and to like literally see that stuff sitting at Falls Creek, you're like, Oh, it's possible here. Like it's not just New Zealand that can do cool shit. Like we can do it here. And yeah. then I was like, I've, I've got to learn how to drive a cat. Like I feel like I mm. like, you know, you work with Sam and I, like you kinda of saw that we had a really, you know, really strong attention to detail and I figured if one of us could learn how to drive a cat, we could do some pretty cool shit. And um, Sam yeah. was like, I don't want to do nights. <laughs> so I was like, right. <laughs> I'm, I'm out. Gonna, <laughs> I'm going to go learn to drive a cat. <laughs> I'm out. I'm not working nights. Yeah. No, again, like Sammy Towers was just like the teddy bear. He was such a nice guy. Yeah. Best, best person ever at delivering constructive criticism. If I was to label it, it would be either you or him, like top, you, him, and Rubes, like top three. Yeah. And then I, I like what you did there. I like what you did there. It fucking sucks. 
just so you know. <laughs> and then here's how we can improve upon that. And then here's the here are the steps that you need to do. Like that's how it would always get laid out by the three of you guys. And I'm like, oh great, fantastic. Here we go. I still think the best mm-hmm. approach go is check a, is a shit sandwich. You know. Yep. You don't want to crush yeah, someone no. completely. You gotta like just give them a compliment, give them a give them a bit of shit, keep it real, and then just give them a little. You can do better. Let's let's see it. <laughs> Yeah, no, totally. That's it. Before we get too far along, man, I really want to jump into something that's been fun for me and for everybody else on the show, which is the push road question of the day. So without further ado, let's roll that intro. The push road question of the day. That's right. The push road question of the day comes from yours truly, Brandon Dodds. Charles has got your push road question. And uh, I think it's a good one. Um, And I think it's great because it's keeping kind of things flowing in a variety of directions for topics. So here we go. Hey, what's up, Blade Dive, Charles and Parker. Uh, So I have a question for Charles, and it pertains to my favorite feature that you've ever built. And that was the whale tail at Whistler for level one. So I'm just curious uh, how that idea came about and who thought of it and what went into it. And then the follow-up to that would be, uh, how many times did you shit your pants trying to winch that thing hanging off the edge? All right, hope you guys are good. Hope we're hanging out in Tahoe soon, Charles. See you guys. That's a good question. And uh, yeah, Brandon's like, yeah, huge part of, uh, yeah, me and like my learning curve. He's he's kind of been a, a huge influence as a mentor. So thanks, B. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that whale tail is probably my favorite feature I've ever built. Um, it was for a level one shoot, obviously. And uh, I had a pretty pretty awesome time at Whistle Black Home doing those like spring shoots. Um, like I was pretty in with the marketing kind of manager uh chris mcleod at the time and these these like companies would come to to whistler and say we want to work with charles because we saw that thing he built for the other movie and like you know one of the athletes has ridden his jumps or something and it just it would flow on pretty nicely and then i would just like chris would do the introduction and then i'd talk with the film crews and we kind of say this is the, the cut time budget and kind of what we're looking at we've got to try and do it within that and um yeah, it would just evolve into like I would talk with the the athletes and the film film crew and just be like, "What are you guys kind of like wanting to achieve?" And they were like, "We want a butter pad." I'm like, oh, "Fuck, butter pads are so played. Like, what are you gonna do? Like a 180 off, and, <laughs> like 180 on and a 540 off? You know, like it they it kind of been around for a while then, and it was kind of played, but everyone wanted a big monster pa- butter pad, and um, I was like, "What if you?" took the classic butter pad and like turned it onto a downhill. So you basically had like a step over true table style jump into it where you could squeeze a double cork and then you would land. And then we had a big step down cliff that was pretty much a flat, flat cliff instead of a kicker. Um, and you could probably still do like a, a seven off it cause it's going to be pretty gnarly. And they were like, that sounds awesome. <laughs> I was like, cool. I don't know if I can build it, but let's 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 have a crack. <laughs> I drew up the sketches and I was like, Yeah, yeah, this is you know, we rode around the mountain and it was fun, man. Like you would you would like literally do everything start to finish, come up with a concept with those guys and don't um, you know, 
just ride around the mountain, find the spots, and then talk to, you know, Stan Kelly and, and the grooming managers and stuff about whether or not you could kind of close that bowl in springtime and, and use that area to do it. And, um, you know, take a probe out there, probe snow and do the whole lot. And, uh, and then, yeah, we, when it came to building that thing, it was like, it was a challenge thinking about how you would go about it because I'd never built anything like that before. And, uh, I got built butter pads, but not, not like that. And, um, yeah, I ended up just building this huge snow cliff <laughs> and, uh, and then stack the landing above it and turn it this big rollover. And then we ended up, um, yeah, just like it was so for me terrifying because it was so much responsibility like wow like what if they land like on the landing and the landing's too long and it's really you know they gain a lot of speed coming out of a 50 foot jump and then they go off the cliff and they overshoot the landing or what if the cliff what if the knuckle for landing off the cliff is too far away and they can't make it and they like blow their knees out because it's Mm. like this huge like two and a half story drop and uh, just all this stuff going through your head. So you like would just completely obsessed with it. I'd take photos every night before I left and like wake up and have breakfast and look at photos of it on my phone and just picture someone hitting it and the speed they'd be taking off it into the next hit. And um, it was like, it was a crazy process. And yeah, then by the end of it, sure enough, like I made the landing just long enough that it was like not dangerous off the, um, the step over. And being a step over, you didn't need, you weren't landing with a huge amount of speed. Um, and not much impact, and then they had just enough speed, like they would kind of just do like a turn off the, uh, you know, off the cliff, and and it put them in the sweet spot. So it was like it was like the most satisfying thing ever. Nice when they rolled in and, and hit it and like landed sweet spot, and then the flow was like perfect off the lip into the next sweet spot, and you're like, wow, that worked out better than the I expected. Wow. <laughs> And it was before drones and shit like that. So, you know, every time you had a shoot in spring, you'd have like these helicopters rock up and they would just be follow camming the skiers. And it was like insane. And then some some nights you'd be lucky enough, you'd park the cat and be like, hey, can, can I get a ride down to the heliport? I'll come get the cat tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and you'd get, you'd get a ride down with them, call a taxi at the bottom and go home. Oh, man. But uh, yeah, it was, that was a pretty, pretty fun time. Really cool. So, did you ever shit your pants? I have to ask. Like, were you ever scared winching that thing? I don't want to know. Absolutely terrified. Yeah, I mean, like, we only just like I squeaked in barely a cat pass either side of the the jump takeoff to get onto that thing, and it was all sheer cut. And I mean, I was like, you know, my tracks weren't hanging over the edge by any means. I was like, you know, a foot or two away from the edge the whole time. But you know, you're backing down like up over that roller jump with a winch, and like down that landing, <laughs> you're like don't sleep sleep or do anything sketchy or like just keep it straight yeah <laughs> and then and then use your mirrors and everything and uh we literally you'd drop the tiller and it was a winch cat like it wasn't it was an extended long tiller frame you were you know, like a 600 winch just trying to get right to the edge to put the tiller down and then groom it all the way out it was uh it was something else and i mean when the riders you know if the skiers crashed like it was hilarious because you know there were this helicopters flying around the heli times just it's money flying around and um you know if, if someone like crashed on the cliff we had a ladder there and you would take the ladder straight over to the side of that thing and they would like throw their skis off and stocks off and they would like do the the climb down of shame i was gonna say i was gonna <laughs> add, that was my next question did anybody ever biff on the on the butter pad and it's like oh dude like you were yeah, that it guy it wasn't yeah 
it wasn't as sketchy, you know. Like I, I was like, if you crash, you're sliding off that thing and breaking your yeah. Belt. yeah. <laughs> but, but, but it was like this thing where you know you if you crashed and hit the deck, you were like stopping like you know quite a way before the actual next yeah. round. But um, yeah, it was cool. We should probably get a photo of that. To put yeah, up. no, like on film. I mean, I remember seeing that feature um, on film. Like I wouldn't have touched that with a ten foot pole. I would have been I would have been the guy that said, "Give me the ladder. I'll man the ladder." <laughs> I'm totally. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna ride that thing though. But it looks smooth. Looks yeah. looks smooth for sure. Did the uh, the skiers were all about it, and there was like a you know a, a trans world snowboard shoot after, and it you know it was springtime, so everything was melting mm-hmm. so quick. And they were like, oh, you know, we could probably incorporate that in the trans world shoot. And the guys are like, we do not want a piece of that thing. And it's fucking burly. <laughs> I was like, but the skiers hit it. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like any opportunity to build like another crazy big feature, it's like you know such an honor because it, you know, like what people don't understand is like you know that's not your money. You know that that someone else is investing that money into that feature to get like, you know, marketing content, whether it's for a movie or a or a magazine. Like it was, um, it was a responsibility that you had to take seriously. It wasn't like, well, I want a fucking shot at building that thing. It's like, well, yeah, <laughs> we all do, but it's like it's just a lot of responsibility and a lot of stress and anxiety that comes with it. So there's a component of you that really wanted to be in the machine in Australia, but there was, I wouldn't say resistance is the right word, but you just didn't have the time. And maybe there was, maybe they were uncomfortable. I don't know what the correct term might be. Maybe they were apprehensive. There you go. They wanted to invest in other things, whatever it is, but you ended up spending time in a machine in North America before going to actually officially get behind the sticks as a labeled cat operator in Australia at Squaw Valley. You were there at Squaw Valley first operating before you were at Threadbow, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was, you know, I wanted nothing more than just to get in a cat and learn. And I was willing to step away from being a, a park manager to do it. Um, but there was a slopes manager at Threadbow at the time that, um, didn't like parks, didn't like snowboarding. And, um, basically I was the, uh, the epitome of both. And, and so, <laughs> he so had it out like, for you i was like the devil to that guy and um he wouldn't let me in so um and i explained it to like uh, adam galbraith who was like a he was a park builder from california he's american i don't know if he's from california but he was working at parisher at the time as their main builder and he was like an amazing operator and building like amazing stuff over there and um i'd go over there and ride just to, to hit his stuff and you know, we kind of got to talking and he's like, dude, I see what you're doing at Threadbow. Like, you know, the park's amazing. And, and considering, you know, you don't know how to drive a cat, I think it's time. Like, you, you clearly have an eye for things and um, you should get behind sticks. And I'm like, well, I can't. Like, um, I don't have the opportunity at Threadbow. And he's like, well, listen, I, I've got a friend in School Valley I can call and, um, and get you a start as a rookie. We can get you a visa. And, you know, he, he went out of the way. And, like, I was competition you know like we were threadbone parish we were pretty always pretty fierce but he was just down to to help me kind of get a get a start and um, wow it's cool yeah so i ended up going to to school valley to basically become a pack groomer and drive around in circles scratching boilerplate ice on um i forgot what the run's called um but yeah basically like in, in the beginner slopes on the upper mountain mm. and we just drive around following each other's passes all night and i was still snowboarding professionally at the time so i was like sleep deprived as I would sled and film backcountry all day 
and then come to work and, you know, like three hours sleep to work graveyard and just be the worst groomer pretty much that I've ever seen. You know, they're like, who's that with the wavy pass? Pass number three. I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ, it's me again. <laughs> like, who's that pounding. with the wavy pass? Yeah, like, yeah. you know, pounding like jelly bellies and drinking Red Bull trying to like stay stay awake. It was um, it was brutal. What and if then, the wavy what if the wavy pass was still straight? Because you know the wave can be straight. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, what's the criticism there really? You could just call that art, really, at that point. Hey man, I'm just putting some style in the snow, bro. Leave me it's, alone. It's still flat, man. It's still flat. Yeah, it's still flat. Yeah. <laughs> Chill. Yeah, they took it pretty seriously. And you know, I I did too, and I was like, I was choked if I wasn't doing a good job, which was pretty much every night. I was pretty pretty down on myself. Um, but yeah, I mean, <clears throat> at that time I was like, I'd ride the park when, you know, we're going through the, when the back country was baked, I would shred the park there during the day. And that's kind of how I met Brandon and Shelby. Um, they kind of saw me riding the park there and we're like, wow, like, who's this, who's this kid riding the park? And we kind of got to talking and, and then, you know, they saw me at work coming in for graveyard at shift change when they were leaving and they're like, oh, Charles. And they were like, oh, you should come work in the park. And, you know, I just was like, these guys are amazing. Like, it's incredible mm. the, the jumps they built. Because it was even better than what I'd seen, you know, like Falls Creek. And, um, you know, when, when the Star Wars guys were out, like the what they were building and the quality of it and the cuts, like just how clean the cuts were. And, you know, to me, I was just like fanning out. These guys were, you know, my heroes. And then they were like, you know, you got to come work in the park. Like, you're in, riding the stuff and, and you get it. Like, you know, you've you got a good eye for it so we, we want you involved and um so yeah i ended up kind of getting a start in the park crew working under brandon and shelby and, and tom richards and uh, they gave me a start and i probably wasn't ready so they you know whether the position wasn't available anymore or um you know i sucked uh, one of the two they kind of um, I had to go back to free grooming and the the beef between free groomers and park groomers there was intense and, you know like wouldn't talk to each other and at the beer fridge at the end of the night, they're like, yeah, free groomers beers, not park crew beers. <laughs> like, fuck it. Jesus. Did Brandon even, yeah, Brandon even touched on that in his episode too. But I mean, okay, so when you're when you're training somebody and the objective is yeah. to really, um, um, you want to be able to, and I mentioned it before, but when you're teaching somebody and you're training somebody, you want to be able to just kind of open yourself up a little bit. Because when you come across as a dick while you're training, all you're doing is destroying the individual that's trying to learn the craft. And you're literally looking at a blank canvas of somebody who's passionate about what they do. Like, go get to know that person. Yeah. You know, literally invest in that individual instead of just pushing them under the rug and treating them as a rookie through whatever the hazing process might be. Talk about that for a little bit. Brandon and Shelby did that. And it was like, you know, when that time kind of came around, it was, um, you know, those guys took me under their wing and yeah, so much like, yeah, so thankful for everything those guys did for me. And, um, you know, Steve, Steve Shelby's, you know, no longer with us and yeah, rest in peace brother. But yeah, it was, uh, he was like instrumental. Like I really looked up to that guy and he did some incredible stuff and he was like an amazing skier too. But, um, you know, when it comes back to that, like nurturing people and bringing them up and like, you know, giving them constructive criticism, but not putting them down and taking that belief and that confidence away from them. I think those guys, you know, did a great job with, with what they did for me. 
on the other end of the spectrum, you, you've got like the free groomers who like the whole culture is just shit. Like maybe like looking to like see a rookie fail so that they could like get that rookie to buy a case of beer and keep everyone buzzed at the end of the shift. Mm. And it wasn't like a, a helpful thing. It was like you'd come to work and you got some like, you know, overweight, like middle-aged douchebag going, oh, well, oh, you see your past tonight? And I'm like, I don't give a fuck, man. Like when was the last time you had sex, you know? <laughs> like, and, and what are you going to do when you knock off your graveyard shift? You're going to go to like talk about fucking winching runs and how, how big your dick is. Like to a bunch of other middle-aged men at like Shammy, like Shamwa or whatever, they went and drinking. That's and it like, though. And I was like the the young kid, like probably had a target on my back. Like looking back now, I probably talk shit on me too. I wore like these headphones to work. I had, you know, baggy jeans and all the latest shit because I was, you know, sponsored and had like all the, the latest gear and I probably like, who's this cook? And it was, yeah, I probably definitely drew some criticism and that was my undoing at some point. But yeah, I just think, you know, I would I would go snowboarding after work every day and the other guys would knock off and be like, you, we're going to the, like, we're going to the pizza st- shop to like sit in the sun and drink piss. And then you would ride all morning like one o'clock come down and they could barely string sentences together. And, mm-hmm. and like, that's not what I'm here to do. And if that's what being part of the boy, boys club is and count me out. And yeah, I was definitely the black sheep and man, I cops and pretty intense shit from a lot of those guys. But, um, Brandon Shelby and, you know, Tom Richards had my back and kind of made it survivable there for me. So, um, yeah, thanks so much to those guys. And, you know, Brandon kind of had the best advice out of anyone. Like I would literally jump out of the cat when I saw them building jumps and I'd be like, oh, can I sit in the passenger seat? I just, I need to see how you do it. Yeah. And and Brandon's like, dude, honestly, anytime I'll just call you up and just ride shotgun. And learning from me is going to be easier than making 15 years of your own mistakes because, you know, mm. I've figured this stuff out on my own over 15 years and, I can bring you up to speed a lot quicker than having to go through all the mistakes yourself. And that was, mm. you know, that was pivotal. Like, you know, my, I guess my learning curve just went to the roof hanging out with him mm. and, uh, and Shelby. And it was, uh, it was, it was pretty cool. Just like after three years there, I went, you know, I ended up going up to Worcester and yeah, it was a whole nother level. Do you feel like the opportunity that you had there on the Alpine crew and just what you were dealing with, with the negativity fucked with your head at all and that your experience with Brandon and Shelby and TR kind of leveled you out? I mean, you kind of hit on that, but like, was there a piece where you were just kind of going, man, what, what is the point? Like I'm literally here and I am ultimately trying to avoid the people that I work with. Like that's not okay. Um, this isn't healthy. Were you ever questioning why you were there and were Brandon and Shelby and TR just keeping you grounded? Oh, totally, dude. Like, I mean, I was, you know, with mental health and everything else too, like you kind of, it's such a common topic these days. Like, you know, is that person all right? Like maybe you put too much shit on him. Like I was just incredibly lucky that I had such a strong social circle, you know, my wife and stuff, my girlfriend at the time, Amy. And, uh, you know, we had a pretty, pretty good, healthy life outside of work and snowboarding, you know, like where I was snowboarding then and, and uh, you know, filming every day, like I had a lot of confidence. So I'd come to work and, you know, that shit would get me down a lot, but there was enough good stuff in my life that it didn't 
didn't I could shrug it off. I was the the rookie in the park. I had a fourteen thousand hour cat that had, had cracks in the frame that had been patched up twice before, and uh, the mechanics didn't like the park guys either. So we, you know, I mean, you come into work you, as an operator, you're not like getting under the tracks and looking at your all your frame like to see if there's any cracks. It's night time. Everything's black. You know, like that's kind of like more or less in like the North American workplace. It's more of a mechanics thing when it comes in for service to check through the frames. But this thing was like a piece of shit on its way out. And they didn't really care. And then um, basically like I was cleaning up the decks on the half pipe one night and I just like heard some like grinding in this thing. And uh, when I rolled up on the, like rolled over the deck doing a pass up onto the flat deck, I was like, that does not sound right. So I like drove it back to the shop and uh, parked the thing in front of the shop um, for the guys to take in the morning. And I guess when they drove into the shop floor, it like <laughs> I guess it must have been pretty pretty cracked through at that point. Maybe just hanging on, and it just like basically flexed into. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was like that was kind of the end of me at Squirrel Valley. And it was like you know the the green manager at the time was like, no, that's not that's not your fault. Like you know, and then the the park guy's like, no, no, that's, you know, it's a, like it's a 14,000 hour cat, man. And it's had cracks in the frame before. But um, basically, yeah, being a park guy and everything else, they were like, uh, the mechanic, the head mechanic there was like a psychopath and he just wanted to, wanted blood. So um, this this thing was like kind of out of my hands in a way. Like I was, you, you're in a 14,000 hour cat that's got like cracks in the frame that haven't been like really well kept, kept track of and you're rolling over knuckles all night you know it's at, at some point that thing's gonna go like whistle black home for me like i got up there and you know if there was like if they picked up on a crack in the frame of a park pro or something they were like all right this thing's coming out of the park and it's going to be a free grooming cat now and the other one the other ones with the good chassis are going in the park and they were like it was just like it's, that's how it is you know um but there was no like oh free grooming park grooming rivalry there was no mechanics hated park guys or anything like we weren't looked at as punks and i think when you when you look at the um the way it was at, at score at that time it's probably much better now but it's um back then it was like it's kind of crazy so charles i have another guest question for you and it's hmm. a really good one it's from ninja and oh, no. here it is I'll, I'll i'll play it for you now <laughs> Hey, Ninja here. Um, I wanted to ask Charles to talk about the time that he made me go up and ride around in the snowcat with him in Aspen, specifically at Snowmass. A couple of years ago, he was doing this big build for um, this project we did, McMorris and McMorris. And he was laughing because I was so scared in the cat because he kept dangling the uh, passenger side track over this like 40 foot cliff. And I thought I was going to die every time he did it, but he was just loving every minute of it, watching me panic and cry like a little baby. Why don't you tell that story, Charles? <laughs> oh my God. I actually forgot about that. I've never seen anyone like so uncomfortable in a situation it was actually really fun <laughs> yeah so ninja yeah i mean he and i have like 
a pretty amazing relationship. He's he's been like hugely influential in in everything I've done. Like he manages the best dudes in the world. Like uh, he's Torstein's agent and Mark Morris's agent as well. And you know, every time he's got a project that the boys want to do, like he calls me up and yeah, we're just kind of like family, like that kind of crew. And it's it's sick. But yeah, we're just shoot and we're building this like huge. It was like a 70 foot cutout jump. And the thing was like, we cut the sides of this jump, like all the way down, like 40 feet down to the ground. And then we had the guys hit it. It was just like a roller jump. And then for the shoot, I was like, we'll cut the guts out. So like I did a chainsaw line and we're sheer cutting like the guts of the jump out all the way down. And every time we got to the edge, like to pop the chainsaw line, like, you know, the cat is, <laughs> the blade of the cat like pops the side, it falls away 40 feet down. And it's, you know, the snow has been sitting for like a day. It's, it's Colorado, it's frozen, it's set up. Nothing's going to like collapse under us. <laughs> but Ninja doesn't know how it all works. And uh, every time we go forward, I'll be like, I'd push a blade of snow off the edge if it just drop away and we just look down, you know, below the rams and it's like 40 foot and he's like grabbing his seat and going, <laughs> and I was, I'll go, every now and then I'll like kick the floor and I go, holy fuck. <laughs> just like, oh God, oh God, are we going off the edge? But I, I was like messing with him hard and I kept doing it and he kept giving me reactions. So we, you know, I must have done it like eight, eight times. He's like, fuck this job. Let me out. Let me out. I'm not dealing with this. Oh, <laughs> and man. Then, and then like, you know, after we'd cut down quite a bit, I, um, you know, I needed a chainsaw to landing because we were like, this thing's got to be schmick. Like in the chainsaw, either side of the landing, we're going to step it out perfect and then winch it again. And um, I was like, it's kind of slick. And the landing's like, you know, 37, 38 degrees. Can you, um, I need you to like, I'm going to go down the landing with a chainsaw and it's, I just need you to tie this. I need to tie this rope around me and you need to hold it. So like basically after I fucked with him, I'm on a chainsaw, you know, on this landing, it's pretty icy. <laughs> like trying to do a chainsaw line. <laughs> and he's like smiling at me. Can you <laughs> like, belay me? Can you belay me down, please? <laughs> <laughs> Another meter, please. <laughs> after I just like completely rolled him in the cat. So yeah, we, like I literally trusted my life. <laughs> wow. And he's always got my back. But yeah, we have we have some fun. Oh man, what a story. <laughs> Dude, that's Yeah. Uh just, just I'll I'll never forget the sounds he made. I mean <laughs> it was like it was like that Bill Burr stand up talking about the the guy in the plane behind him screaming with the turbulence and he's like, Be a fucking man and push that shit down. <laughs> Act like you got solutions. Like, <laughs> it was the same shit. <laughs> Oh, uh, love you, Ninja. Oh <laughs> man, huge shout out to Ninja for contributing. I am, I will say that I am so grateful for his transparency and the way he is. Um, I love that. Um, <clears throat> I just Dude, he is a straight shooter, straight, Ooh. straight as yeah. Mm. And one of the best, yeah, best agents in the in the game. He's like a real life, got his shit together. Arigold, respect him so much. But yeah, it kind of it kind of comes back to the whole like you know. No one gets to where they are on their own. Like you surround yourself with good people and good things happen. And do the right thing by people and they do the right thing by you. And yeah, the relationships like I've been able to build, you know, through Torstein and Ninja and everyone else. It's like, it's, you know, and Mark, like just, just the, yeah, the camaraderie between the boys and, and just kind of 
working well as a group and, and being able to pull cool shit off. Charles, so from my understanding, you're an ambassador for the brand. You're an ambassador for Prenoth. And I just think that's incredible. And whatever you're willing to share, I'd be excited to know what that relationship has been like um, during its length of time that you've you've been that ambassador. I think, I mean, honestly, like I just, uh, I think it comes back to relationships again. Um, uh, Corey Little in Australia is, you know, used to be the mechanic at Perisher, um, like an amazing mechanic, and he went on to work with Prenoth. Um, ben Finn used to actually groom the park at Perisher while I was the, the park manager, and he's a great operator, like insane. I work with him at School Valley too, and he's like the one of the main guys for Prenoth in North America. And um, I mean, the two of them, like, I'm always just talking, like, oh yeah, you know, it'd be cool if we could do this or that. And I just kind of got to the point where, like, hey, it'd be cool if you know, like, you just, you know, she wanted to like use our cats for some of the projects, and you know, we could kind of tie it in with some demo stuff here and there, and um, you know, like, it could be a a, a good partnership. It helps you, you know kind of helps open the doors for them in a couple of places. Like Whistle Black Gun was a prime example. Like they hadn't had a print there in a long time because they're completely red and their fleet's massive. But I mean, you know, I was like, yeah, we're, we're doing this thing for the Canadian snowboard team. So we're going to bring our own cat in and we brought the, the print in. You know, it, it helped with the, the budget of the project that we could do it, you know, more cost effectively because, you know, we're doing a bit of, um, kind of like tying it in with a demo and the guys there were using it and I would, you know, explain how, how it all worked and the rest of it. And then we would, we'd kind of like build a bit of content around the cat as well. Like get some photos of it, building a bit of footage of like, you know, how, how things went start to finish. Like, I think for us, like for me as a, as a builder, when I was younger, like if I could see a time-lapse of a jump getting built or a feature start to finish, how you would do it, that would have just done so much for me as a builder. It would have just been the same as sitting in with, someone like Brandon and, and seeing how they did it. But to see it on a time-lapse video on Instagram, I was like, that's the kind of shit I think other operators want to see. So, you know, Prenoth kind of like really helped me out, like even this year, like with these crazy projects that are like kind of sporadic and popping up and canceling, like they're ready to move a cat and, and help me out. And, you know, Al Graves in Calgary has been huge. So, and then Walter, the guy that's in charge of it all, is like they just – super down for, for feedback on the cats to get better and um and yeah just want to want to work with with guys that are using them properly and, and for us just to be able to roll into resorts and have a good cat to use that's like you know no offense to, to anyone else but it's just like for me if you're you're trying to build a, a jump or a slope style like you you need a winch and a park cat and, and that bison x cat kind of does it all for, for me and ticks all my boxes so that's Kind of what I like using, and you know, sometimes the other ones. Until recently, you know, you you have a winch cat and a park cat, but um, yeah, I'm I'm down with what they do. I back it. I just think it's so fantastic that you're working with a brand like that that's willing to back you, but also keeps it just so real on a personal level. I mean, speaking directly with people like Ben Finn and Walter, like who have the ultimate respect for you. Um, I just think it's rad that they keep it on the real. Yeah, I mean, like I've definitely driven driven all the all different cats over the years but it's like <clears throat> yeah those guys are just like i i kind of pinch myself like the whole whole fact that they're like yeah we'll support you and make sure you get like new demos to like run and you know if you need cats to certain projects like now we're not just limited to like we have to go to this resort because they have those cats in the fleet or we we um you know we need to 
you know, you could go somewhere like bald face where you need a winch now and, and we could like line a project up and have a winch come in and I could have the right tools for the job. So it's like, it opens up like there's nowhere in the world we couldn't go to do a project where these guys wouldn't be able to like line it all up and support it. And it's just been huge. Like it's, it's open doors and you know, the whole thing kind of happened naturally. It's not like I went to them and was like, Hey, do you want to sponsor me? Like, <laughs> that's, that's why it's such a trip. Cause Cause like it just happened normally. Like Ben was like, Hey man, I think we need to do like, you know, you know, the, the cats need a bit more marketing and we just, you know, we want to, you know, would you, would you be down to work together? And I was like, absolutely. Dude. Like I love, I love the cats. I believe in the product and I want to, you know, of course I want a new cat everywhere I go. And if that's a possibility, that's like insane. Like, yeah, never in my wildest dreams would have expected that, that they would want to help on that kind of level. And it's, um, yeah, so thankful for it, and I hope that I can live up to the expectations and deliver on my own. And it's definitely been tricky with the pandemic; like, definitely fallen short of a few targets that I set for myself. <laughs> but um, it's just the way things are right now. And um, yeah, thanks for their understanding and and their support. It's been amazing. Well, I think too, like you've said before, like when you're around good people and good people believe in you, then good things happen. So yeah, it's literally just like the whole, the whole thing's just like literally like the friends that you've come up with are in these roles now and you know, everyone wants to help each other and it's, you know, it's a ski industry. It's a small one. And yeah, if you're, if you're a good person and you're, you're working with good people, like it just flows, you know? Yeah. So true. Uh, I'll, maybe along the lines of flow, I'll, I'll keep it going. And I've got one last guest question for you and it's from your brother-in-law, Russ Henshaw, super stoked that he's contributed so I will play that for you now. Hey guys, thanks for having me on. Um, my question for you, Charles, is what is the most memorable feature you've ever built? Well, um, there's been a lot. Like, it's hard to pinpoint one. I mean, for me, I would say most likely that, that whale tail feature because it was such a challenge. Um, so much went into it. But the other highlight for me, there was like, um, Russell is like my brother-in-law and in the same aspect, like Torstein opened doors, like Russell opened so many doors for me in skiing and, you know, his contacts, um, you know, were kind of like friends of mine through Russell and they would, um, they'd come up to Worcester and like, you know, Amy's sister, Laura and, and, um, Russell would come stay with us and, you know, we had a great time hanging out all the time and Russell is literally like a brother. And he was just the man in skiing. Like, if you don't know Russell Henshaw, he's like, you know, won a bunch of X Games and for slope style and stuff and due tours. And he's an Australian super freak that is like on a, he was a Red Bull skier. He's recently retired, but um, he was the first one to try a triple cork in skiing. And then his, his homie, Bobby Brown, kind of beat him to the punch one spring, like the next spring. And, um, and then, yeah, I, he wanted to do like, a, a triple or two on the on a jump for matchstick so i built this huge cutout jump and at the time it was like pretty cutting edge like it was back when jumps were kind of step downs more so and like pretty flat transitions and this thing had like a 38 degree exit angle it might have been no, it might have been 42 it was like it was insane but the landing was about 40 degrees as well like <laughs> we're maxing out the winch getting it and then I cut this thing out, so there was only like about ten feet of of knuckle left, um, and, and and it was like yeah, no room for error. It was it was a monster, 
and the cutout was probably like 70 feet. It was insane. And and the uh, the transition on it was so big. Like the the takeoff was just enormous, and it was like steep. So anyway, like Russell was backing it, and I think like there was one other kid that turned up there that was like kind of a drain. Um, Jacob Wester. <laughs> That guy was like, yeah, the ultimate whinging pro. And he rocked up and was like, why the fuck did he cut it out, man? He doesn't even know if it's going to work yet. And then Russell just turned around and was like, shut the fuck up. No one's asking you to hit it first. And then Russell like pointed his skis downhill and blasted down the end run. And it's like foggy, can barely see anything. And next thing you know, he's just like, boom, just straight out of this thing like a cannon. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, he's an animal. And then he lands and he's like, the jump's perfect. Let's go. Next <laughs> thing you know, like the skies, you know, the skies open up and like the heli takes off and I'm like, oh shit, we're in for a show. And Russell, like in that session, like it's a sunset session. The light is golden, like light's good, do anything scenario. And instead of just doing anything, he just drops in and does like, boom, like front, uh, I know what you call them, but like a right side or a left side, like, triple cork 14 <laughs> and it was like the first, it was the second one in skiing but it was done so big and wow. so so slow like it was the most airtime i think any of his any of his had seen on a jump at that point because it was just so up and down and so massive and cut out so it looked ridiculous and uh and he was like he would land where the hill joined back up to the cuts on the breakover like mm. not in the sweet spot like way down and there was still no real impact so he was just absolutely sending, and it was a session. Like I'll never forget the session. And like Amy, Amy was up there. I had a, I had a six pack of beer, like <laughs> stashed, stashed there. It was like I wasn't going to drive the cat down, just for the record. I was going to ride up, but uh, <laughs> we're sitting there watching the sunset. And like you know, after seeing Russell do that, we're like, holy shit, this can't get any better. And he just goes back up on the sled. And he, the next thing you know, he like drops in switch, and I'm like, oh my god. And he just drops into like a switch double uh, 12 or whatever. And then he goes back up and then I'm like, is he going to, is he going to try what I think? And he just drops in, he does like switch triple. I think it's like, yeah, it's like a switch triple 12 maybe. Wow. But, but anyways, like that one hadn't been done before. So he'd done like one triple that had been done before, but done it like massive and better. And then just mm-hmm. came in and dropped this other one. And he was like, just, on another level and he just it was like probably the session of his career and for me it was like best ski session i've ever been to damn and it and this other kid that was whinging was like doing rodeo sevens and shit and you're like ah he gives a fuck (laughs) (laughs) um no i know that you have so much respect for russ and i um it was it was awesome that he contributed so um i knew that my wife and his sister were sitting there like we're watching the whole thing cheering him on it was it was surreal so cool and shout out to russell for his like transition out of skiing i've never seen anyone nail it so perfectly like he was like yeah um i've done it well i've had a good time and i'm going like he, he left the sport while i was in the top 10 not like waiting till he washed up he's like i think i'm ready for some change and he just was like the writing's on the wall a couple of years it's just going to keep dropping off i'm like late he was late 20 it's like 27 like he still had some gas left in the tank if he wanted to milk it, but he just went out strong and uh, and just jumped straight into like a carpentry trade. And he's in Jindabyne, like currently building our house with um <laughs> with his uh, 
<laughs> with his carpenter boss, you know, like, and he's almost done his, he's almost done his trade and he's, I don't know, I think he's 30 or 31 now. Like he stepped out at the right time and he's about to become a full, full, uh, fully certified carpenter. <laughs> and he like rolled out owning his house and owning his truck and everything. Like he's a smart dude and played his cards well. Um, Marty up at Whistler and his influence on you and what being around Marty was like, because I know you've spoken about him before and just what he was able to, to do. And not only from just a manager's perspective, but just from the investment perspective, I, he, he sounds like he really believed in you, I guess is what I'm getting at. Yeah. I mean, Marty's like the epitome of like the, the best boss you can have. Like he would like, I mean, he's, been doing it for so long he like knows how to run every machine does a bike park in summer can run all the excavators and stuff but he's like a ninja and he doesn't have an ego and doesn't like give a shit about all his young bucks want to build like all the big jumps and you know set all the rails and, and be the man like he's just like oh yeah cool i've seen <laughs> seen a lot of you guys come up and he's just happy to support everyone and like provide opportunities and for me when i came up there like I was like, yeah, I want to build the big jumps. And he was like, cool. Um, and he would just like rock up and like strip strip the area next to the jump line and feed me while we built these jumps. And then he would just like drop his tiller, clean up the push zone, and then just like disappear. <laughs> like, holy shit. Like this, this guy is like amazing, generous, and like thinks about the bigger picture. Whereas, you know, me, I was probably just like, oh, I'm going to build a fucking jump. But he's like, he's like thinking about everything. And while you're doing that, he's like moving snow guns and like dealing with snow making. And then like, you know, at the end of the shift, like his his wife works ski patrol. They're like a, a full resort couple, you know, like power couple. She's one of the, the avalanche forecasters there. And, um, you know, she'd be like, oh, we're having trouble with the, the ski out to the access road. And we've asked the grooming crew to fix it and they haven't got around to it or something. And literally on his way down to shift change, we'd just like zip out onto the ski run fix what is you know fix the access road for patrol and then get back to the, the the grooming trailer and not not say anything like hey i did this for you guys like just unsung hero and then the next day like all the patrols like man someone fixed the access road and I'm like that's not even the terrain park that's not anything to do with like his responsibilities but he's that much of a team player that he steps out of of his world to help others and yeah as a as a boss like he was just amazing like so helpful always down to support and couldn't ask for a better, better leader. I mean, like, you know, like there's just like some park managers come in with like fucked up ideas all the time and want to like really be heard. And you're like, eh, I don't know about that. Like, but he would, he would just like, let, let the boys kind of get on with it. If you, if you were proving yourself to be a good builder, like you got lots of chances yeah. and, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a positive work environment for sure. Yeah, it's interesting when leaders kind of change coats. When they change coats or they change hats and they, they're doing it for the, for a different reason. Maybe it's um, kind of like their own agenda. But when they're when they're literally putting on a different hat and or, or changing coats because they've got to just, oh, yep, I was here in the desk and I was literally doing some paperwork and now I've got to go out and assist. I think that's the best way I could put it. Um, I mean, one of the things we talked about was just what it looks like to manage something as far as a terrain park program or any program and whether the manager has to do that behind the sticks. And I thought your response was great and being able to just contribute where you can, you know, as best you can and not necessarily put your thumb on anybody. Yeah. And on, 
like you can just look at the environment and it's like a testament to, to who's coming out of there. Like, I mean, you know, you look at, at, at Ty Weed like, and, and Bailey Mitchell. They're two of the best park builders in Canada and probably the world. And it's, um, you know, like that's because of the environment they're in. Like you, you get chances to try building stuff. You get opportunity. You get to work with people that are like are open and, and don't put you down and actually like offer advice and feedback and not in a shitty way. So it's, um, I mean, those guys are incredible as well. Like seeing, seeing them kind of start as rookies and then just like, get to where they are it's like so much respect i'm killing it yeah well i mean you're helping build people up and you're not breaking them down and i think that's that's so cool that's so that's so cool i've never been i've never been to whistler i really want to go um but if i ever get the chance to meet marty i'll definitely say hello while i'm up there for sure and especially since you you speak highly of him um i just i think it's so important to be able to um you know be a simplifier not a complicator i've said that before on the show you know um, I think somebody else has said that you should come with solutions instead of problems. You know, the manager piece and whether that's in the machine or whether that's behind the desk, um, I just kind of want to know your two cents on whether or not you think the manager should always be building or are they leading somewhere else from somewhere else? I think you ask anyone that's driven a cat and gets to build stuff. Um you know, they're always going to want to do all the building themselves. And, you know, I was probably guilty of that for a while too. And I think, um, you know, the, the best way to run a program is to have a good understanding and be able to jump in wherever you need. Like I, in the roles that I did, I was, I was working across like marketing, um, across the, the operations with the, the snow cats. Once I learned how to drive, um, you know, the day crew and then, you know, the welding and, and the steel fabrication of all the rails. And I just, I had a hard time respecting any park manager that didn't have all those skills because it's like you have to be able to relate to everyone. Otherwise, you're going to have like the park crew talking shit on the groomers and the groomers talking shit on the park crew for being lazy, but no one sees what happens on the other end of the spectrum. So if you've got a mm-hmm. boss that can like dip dip between them, you know, like I might, when I was at Perisher, I'd do three days a week in a cat. Um, at night building stuff, I would do three days a week with the day crew. Um, I'd be working six days a week. 60, 70 hours a week, which I probably wouldn't be able to do again. <laughs> but uh, that's heavy. Yeah, yeah. It was it was your life and it was your baby. Like, mm-hmm. and and you took so much pride in it, like everyone else that worked there. Um, and and Parisha was just a you know it was a wild time. Like, that's another thing about managing is like we we had like Brandon come out there, um, and and Doug Graham was the existing park builder there, and he he's he's amazing too. And the three of us on one one crew you had like three alpha builders <laughs> oh man all, all working together dougie was on grave <laughs> so he had to like clean up a lot of shit for us half the time and you know definitely got a bit sandbagged here and there but you know like you knew that you had like someone that was incredible on graveyard that would do an amazing job grooming stuff out and took pride in it too you know and then brand and i would just be like gang bang on like swing shift just you know we had a, like our best night ever was like we I still don't think we've ever topped it. It was like we pulled out 11 rails, we reset four, and we built a 50 and a 55-foot jump from scratch, and then we rebuilt the bottom jump that was 50 or 45 feet to 60 all in one shift and then left Dougie to maybe put one rail takeoff or something on and groom, groom everything out. And the three of us in one night just like, you know, it was unrecognizable what they came into the next day. They're like, holy shit, where did this come from? And wow. I still learned, 
like we were just all so driven and like just wanted that place to be the best place in the world. Yeah. And that was like, that. I mean, nothing that good lasts forever. I mean, we, we were all kind of alphas and everyone, you know, there's politics at play as well. And yeah, it just, after a while, we all got on each other's nerves and we, we all talk now, we're all friends now, but it was like, yeah, it was kind of, kind of a weird time. Yeah, and, yeah looking see, back on that, it, that was an adventure. Yeah, you see a lot of like different parkour games too. I mean, you know, you've usually got like one one builder of the caliber of the three of us, you know, you know, building everything at a, a resort with a couple of trainees under them. Um and and those three of us in the one spot, it was uh, <laughs> it was a cockfight. <laughs> and it was it was um, tough to manage too. But you know, we're all talking now and in that period we all probably look back on pretty fondly. Like um, you know, props to Props to Brandon and uh, and and Dougie and, and now you know Nick Murchison who's like the, the park manager there now. Like I still go back and work at Parachute sometimes to help build and and Nick's Nick's someone that I trained up and he's he's doing a great job now and yeah I'm just like working under him and stoked. <laughs> it's cool. I definitely want to know Charles what you think the future looks like and and I think that's a pretty broad question. So you can kind of take it from whether it's the snow industry or terrain parks or consulting what but from whatever angle you want to take it from where do you think the future is headed well it's hard to say man i mean from the resort industry standpoint like i would definitely like to see like you know operators paid more because i mean when you when you think about it from a business perspective like especially for me contracting like you know, a cat a cat hour will cost you anywhere between like you know one fifty to three fifty an hour, and mm. you're gonna you're gonna pay some guy like minimum wage to sit in that cat, and it's like, <laughs> you know, like why don't you pay someone properly and train them properly, and then it's gonna cost you less and things will be more efficient. And I think that's like one thing that gets massively overlooked. I think the ski industry, when it comes to snowcat operators, needs to like really realign like the way they look at it you know like you're just going to send a guy out driving around circles getting you know half the shit he should get done done um and he's burning 300 300 an hour worth of <laughs> cat time yeah so you're going to pay someone like a little bit more and he like gets more done in a shift and you maybe you know parish was a prime example i said like can we pay you know brandon and and dougie and whoever else like more money and we have like instead of five drivers we have three these guys get paid better but we get more shit done they're not going back to redo things as much we have like a strong team we move forward faster everyone's more engaged like you know everything just gels better but i mean when you see places with high turnover and they're just like oh well you know it's just it's high turnover you're like no just be smarter like don't like don't look at certain certain pennies versus other pennies and you know can't compare apples with oranges and and then yeah i guess as far as the future stuff like that's what i like to see for operating dribble dribble <laughs> but um as far as like the future of snowboarding i think it's just with the athletes we kind of have to like watch where they want to take it and like you know listen to them on on what the future looks like and i think at some point too like you know we don't want to see big air become like octo corks and shit like it, it kind of um and the airbags too are like supercharging big air to the point where you're like oh what's going to happen and i think it's going to come back to snowboarding and transitions mixing with 
slope style so that you know it, it's more than just like i can do a quad cork on an airbag you can actually snowboard use your edges ride transition hit rails and hit jumps like i just think progression too like you know focusing hard on progression and and bringing people into the sport and keeping them engaged because i mean you we're literally competing with kids that play video games now like esports and the rest of it it's like you have to like put your best foot forward if we're gonna like get the next generation into this stuff and and keep keep this um culture alive you know i will go ahead and and ultimately say that i have so much respect for you as a person as a dad as a husband as an individual and um you know anybody that questions that i'm definitely going to stick up for you for sure 125 percent, because you stuck your neck out for there out there for me and you helped me with my career and for that i will be forever grateful forever Thanks, grateful honestly yeah, like be- seeing seeing what you did after you left threadboat too is um you know i was i was rooting for you it was it was cool to watch i mean what what you did in those years after threadboat was like amazing and um i mean what you're doing right now is like it's it's awesome like i love listening to you know the guys you're interviewing are like guys i look up to and respect and you know it's it's cool to hear other people's stories and backgrounds and experiences so yeah the shifts along and you know listen to podcasts i mean frank put it really well um to me one time he's like you still listen to music in your cat man that is a waste of fucking time you could be learning <laughs> shit i'm like whoa you're right oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well you crushed the old dog <laughs> you're <running> something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. and shout out to frank too he's yeah he's the man dude like love hanging with that dude and he's yeah he's mentored me a lot too like just in business and you know how, how like a lot of the dealings went with the different projects like i definitely learned a lot from him just being like a big brother so thanks frank yeah shout out to frank incredible human being well charles i think we did it man i think we Absolutely created something incredible here and I'm excited for everybody to tune in and listen. And I just want to take another minute to just say thank you. And again, just let people know that the stoke is real and the, the, the stories you've heard about how incredible <laughs> Charles Charles Beckinsale is yeah. are true. I don't know about that. Yeah, but um thanks so much for having me on and um yeah. And I'm I'm sure I forgot to thank a ton of people and yeah for that i'm sorry like you know who you are and uh yeah thanks again to everyone listen wow huge shout out to charles that was an awesome conversation thank you sir i'm gonna go ahead and stick with the gentleman title um i loved what charles had to say about surrounding yourself with positive people who pick you back up you know, don't go being somebody else just because you think you got to fit in. That might not be what you want to be associated with, especially if you're trying to advance your career. Don't sacrifice your original authenticity just for the sake of being cool. Damn straight. Okay, real quick before we get out of here, I just want to say thank you to you, all the listeners. It means the world that you're tuned in. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a review if you can. It really does help the show out. Don't forget to send in your push road questions of the day. And you know the deal. Don't be a dick. Please fill your machine up with diesel at the end of your shift.